You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. So once again, good morning, everyone, and welcome to our discussion today on uh, China's and Europe's soft power, understanding each other a bit better. Uh, we're going to kick off with a discussion on the EU-China year of tourism. Uh, I just wanted to say a few words before we start the panel discussion. Most of us, when we talk about international relations, we think in very traditional terms. We think about state-to-state relations. We think about government-to-government relations. We focus on meetings between presidents and prime ministers and foreign ministers, sometimes parliamentarians and business leaders as well. But I think all of us here understand that in today's interconnected, interdependent world, where there is social media everywhere, it's really the conversation between people that counts. That's where trust is built. That's where people get to know each other. That's where confidence comes from. And in international relations, I think trust, mutual trust, is an important, a very important issue. So it's really no surprise that many of the EU's strategic partnerships, including the one with China, has a, has a chapter, has a pillar, which is on, um, on social, on cultural, on people-to-people contacts. And Just recently, the high-level people-to-people dialogue between the EU and China was held, I think, in Shanghai uh, very recently. Um, And I think this conversation between people, that is the emphasis in the year of tourism as well, the EU-China year of tourism, which is in 2018. And, of course, that is the theme of our first panel. Uh, So tourism, as we'll hear from our specialists here, is of course a major global economic activity. It has wide-ranging impact on economic growth, employment, and social development. And as all of you know, China is a major destination uh, for European tourists and vice versa. So let me introduce our panel today. So we have the privilege of having with us today Anna Atanasopoulou. Um, she's head of unit for tourism, emerging and creative industries at the European Commission. She really is an expert on culture and cultural policy and has been in charge also of the 2004 Athens Olympic Games. So you have real sort of uh, experience and expertise. And she worked with our dear friend Andrula Vesilu when she was a European Commissioner here. So she really has her uh, insight knowledge of what uh, culture is all about in the EU-China relationship. Also with us, my old friend Xining Song. Uh, he's Jean Monnet Chair and Research Director of the Center for European Studies at Renmin University of China, and currently, to our great pleasure and privilege, based here in Brussels uh, at the Academy for China Europe Studies. Uh, also with us, Frantisek Reismuller, a China Specialist at the European Travel Commission. Uh, Frantisek is a China Specialist at this commission, and they're working you are working very closely uh, with the Commission on marketing campaigns linked to the year of tourism, EU-China. So thank you very much for being here. Also, my old friend, Miko Turtainen, who is Vice President Global Sales at Finnair, just flew in last night from London, right, Miko? Yes, London. And, you know, Finnair, as you will learn, is really working very, very hard and in a, in a very dynamic way on EU-Asia uh, connections, connectivity, air connectivity. That's his big game. And he's going to tell us a little bit about how uh, Finnair is working on the year of tourism. And last but not least, welcome. Uh, Shuantan is a Belgium-based cultural team, Atlas International. 
and uh, using also uh, all her expertise on culture and tourism uh, to bring connections between China and Europe. So that's the panel, and of course we're going to continue later on uh, with another panel which is specifically on European and Chinese soft power. But let's go now with the year of tourism. So Anna, recently when this meeting was held in Shanghai, um, the culture commissioner, Tibor Navar, Navar Rashish, Navarchich, he said, okay, I'm quoting, EU and China increasingly share global responsibilities. We work together on complex issues from fighting poverty, tackling climate change, to boosting trade and security. We build on shared views, but sometimes we need to bridge our differences. So I was wondering, this year of tourism, uh, what is the philosophy, what is the idea behind it, what's the concept, and how does it tie in with Europe's own year of cultural heritage, which is also next year? It's on. It's on. Yeah. Okay. Well, good morning, uh, everyone. Thanks for, for the question, uh, Shada. Well, uh, I think you said it all. It's about creating synergies and perhaps bridging differences. Uh, we'll see. Uh, but uh, first of all, let me say how delighted I am to be here today uh, to talk about uh, the 2018 uh, EU-China Year of Tourism before it uh, even started. And actually, almost two months to the day uh, before its official opening in Venice, uh, which will take place on the 19th of January. Um, so it's a good start uh, uh, for us. Um, now, the decision to uh, designate 2018 as the EU-China Year of Tourism was taken already two years ago and at the highest political level on both sides. Uh, in the meantime, uh, the initiative has been warmly welcomed by the EU tourism industry and also we have seen uh, Chinese operators mobilized uh, and expressing their interest to join as partners of, uh, of the year. So, so far so good, but maybe somebody will be asking, and the question was asked, why a year on tourism? Is it necessary? Um, I would say yes. I would say it ties in very well with the dynamic of, of uh, EU-China relations and the way they have been developing so far since uh, at least 2012 as it, come, as it relates to the people-to-people -people dialogue. Uh, because both uh, tourism, like culture, is about growth, it's about development, investment and jobs, but it is also, it is also about people, uh, intercultural links and understanding. And uh, the EU-China Year of Tourism actually rests on these two policy objectives. On one hand, the economic objective about increasing flows of tourism, tourists on both sides, of course, in the EU and in China, boosting advanced investment uh, and accompanying our operators to access the respective markets. But it is also about culture. There's a, a, a distinct, I should say, socio-cultural dimension to it. Um, which is about awareness raising, it's about boosting contacts between people, it's ultimately about uh, building bridges. And uh, one may ask, of course, can these two uh, objectives, the economic and the cultural, be reconciled? Well, uh, let me uh, talk about the figures first. Huh? Uh, China is the world's third largest economy after the US and China, and it's fast growing, it continues to grow. Uh, at the same time, it is the world's largest travel market in terms of uh, outbound, outba outbound travel and expenditure. And it's among uh, the top world destination in terms of international tourist arrivals. Actually, in 2017, China is fourth uh, after France, US and Spain. 
At the same time, we have seen Chinese investment in Europe increasing in the last years, uh, also linked uh, uh, with the uh, Belt and Road Initiative, and uh, including in the tourism sector. And we have seen a sort of increasing interest of Chinese investors in South European countries, beyond the traditional EU member states that have been attracting Chinese investments in the past. Uh, so there, with China, we have a booming market uh, for tourism, growing, and a competitor, if you like, on a global level. Let me come to the uh, EU. Now, with almost uh, 500 million uh, international tourists arriving uh, to the EU in 2016, the EU continues to be the first world destination for tourism. Um, so for us, it's an important area that we want, in which we want to maintain our global competitive edge. Eh? At the same time, tourism uh, remains an important sector for the EU economy. Um, it contributes about 10% to EU GDP. It employs about 26 million people. That is about 15% of EU employment. Uh, so the numbers are strong for the EU for tourism. At the same time, it is a sector that is resilient, uh, has proven resilient to the economic crisis, continues to grow, and also resilient to the recent economic, uh, sorry, the, the recent security threats in, in uh, the EU. So initiatives like the EU-China Year of Tourism um, are, if I may say, win-win for both EU and China, so the interest is natural there. And they can bring along benefits both in uh, uh, symbolic, cultural and economic terms. Um, if you wish, I could already go through the specific opportunities that the year offers, or we can you do, do that. that. Yeah, yeah, do that. Just tell okay. us the specific opportunities. All right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let me then briefly highlight um, the, the opportunities that we hope that uh, the uh, year will bring uh, to both partners in terms of economic development and people-to-people -people contacts. Now, uh, initiatives like... Uh, like these, like an EU-China year of tourism, uh, are very much about awareness raising, communication. So the backbone of the year uh, is about branding the EU on the Chinese market uh, and about marketing campaigns. Um, there, um, we uh, cooperate with the European uh, Travel Commission and uh, our, the aim is to promote Europe as a destination uh, we have done so um, since a number of years. However, there will be a novelty for 2018, uh, a new and ambitious initiative that we wish to test uh, with China as a pilot phase. Um, it is what we call a joint promotion platform. Uh, the idea basically behind the platform is to bring together uh, public and private stakeholders, such as national uh, tourism organizations, uh, EU regions, uh, the industry, uh, private sponsors, okay. in order to enable targeted communication and marketing campaigns thanks to a sort of blending, uh, blended <laughs> public and private funding. Uh, the EU is supporting the initiative with uh, 4.3 million euros. This is a, quite a big amount considering the very limited budget that the EU has to support cult uh, tourism. And uh, we wish through that small amount to leverage, uh, as I mentioned, both public and private funding um, in order to diversify and further develop what we call transnational tourism offer and content. In this case, targeting Chinese, the Chinese audience. 
Chinese travelers. Um, why transnational? Because, of course, the EU can only come as added value and as complementing what member states are doing and what uh, is being supported and financed at national level or the regional level. Um, when it comes to um, uh, the economy and the numbers again, now the target of these branding or marketing campaigns for us is to increase uh, the number of Chinese travelers. We hope to bring about 15% more to Europe every year uh, and with that to uh, generate about uh, an extra 1 billion euros um, for the EU economy. Um, in order to support this effort, we also facilitate business-to-business -business cooperation. About 10 uh, B2B uh, events will be organized in total uh, in chi with Chinese uh, partners. Um, this roughly represents uh, about 5,000 one-to-one matchmaking meetings really? between EU tourism operators and Chinese uh, operators. And we hope that at least some of them uh, will lead to signed deals and partnership agreements on, on the ground. In addition, uh, we um, offer uh, webinars, training and technical support uh, for EU uh, tourism operators. Right. Now, it's not all about the economy. Uh, it's also about culture and about people to people. Uh, there, uh, there is uh, some, if you like, grassroots symbolic initiatives like uh, the EU-China Light Bridge. And, uh, for instance, on the 2nd of March, uh, if you go uh, around Brussels, uh, on some of the landmarks of Brussels, I cannot tell much more, but perhaps head to the Grand Place, there you might find yourself in front of a lovely surprise where um, uh, the sites, um, important sites of culture and heritage in the EU will be um, illuminated in red to celebrate uh, the Chinese New Year. Oh, right. okay. And we're hoping that a number of Chinese cities will illuminate uh, the important uh, heritage sites in China on the 9th of May to celebrate the uh, European Day. So it's a small, if you like, symbolic event, but it's, it comes right into the public space mm -hmm. where people circulate and live in, in our own experiences in everyday life. On another level, of course, um, the European Year of Cultural Heritage in 2018 creates uh, concrete opportunities for us to uh, create synergies uh, between uh, cultural and tourism stakeholders um, in order to raise awareness about Europe's rich and diverse heritage. Um, so we've been working with UNESCO uh, on that to develop uh, four uh, thematic uh, uh, European cultural routes uh, this is work that has started already in 2015, but for 2018, for next year, we will uh, try to promote those routes uh, for Chinese audiences. It's ways of linking already existing initiatives on culture and giving them, if you like, a Chinese twist. Um, and we're also happy to see that um, our uh, partners, both on the tourism and on culture, um, are working together. Uh, the European Travel Commission has signed a memorandum of understanding with Europa Nostra. Uh, so it, it's very interesting for us to see that also it's sort of, if you like, beyond the Commission services, there is an interest right. of uh, stakeholders to work together. And I will close with, um, uh, if you like, the nexus tourism, culture, and um, soft power. Um, I, could dare, I would dare say that tourism and culture um, 
is a natural connection when it comes to developing policy initiatives. Uh, because both are, of course, policy and economic sectors in their own right, but they also have a public good value element in them. Um, because both tourism and culture um, allow contacts between people. Uh, because in both cases, mobility and mobility across borders and interaction between people lie at their heart. And that gradually help create a space uh, where um, links can be developed, mutual understanding can exist, and um, uh, relationships can be uh, furthered. That also includes relationship between states. Now, um, this is, of course, a long-term process, and one based on openness, on reciprocity, and mutual commitment. And uh, this is certainly true in the case of uh, EU-China relations. And our small ambition is that uh, tourism will actually enter into the framework of our EU-China relations as a standing area of common interest right. on which we can build on both to boost uh, the economy but also to further people-to-people -people contacts. Mm. Thank you very much, Anna. Thank you very much for that very, very comprehensive overview of what you're doing and, and the details about, well, how you're connecting people through these light bridges. I think that's fascinating. Um, Miko, so this is a big <laughs> boost for your already thriving uh, business, right? More people traveling, more air connectivity. This is, this is going to be, what, like a manna from heaven, right? Very excited. Very excited. I mean... I think that we touched on a lot of, you know, the key words in regards to what the EU-China tourism year 2018 means for Finnair. I think two of the main ones that I would bring up is building the awareness, building the understanding between Chinese and, and European industry players in regards to how we can package better different kind of tours and, and, and vacations for the Europeans going to China and for the Chinese coming to Europe. I think this is a great bridge to, to connect with the business-to-business -business matchmaking meetings for us to get to know each other better, to build the trust, because trust is one of the key elements. And as Shada mentioned, China is extremely important for Finnair. <clears throat> Finnair's strategy is based on growth in Asia. Asia is where we want to be one of the top airlines, and China comes at the very top of that list. How many of you, how many of you knew that Finnair flies to seven different cities in China? We have the traditional, the Beijing, Shanghai, and the Hong Kongs, but we also fly to Guangzhou, Chongqing, Xi'an, Hong Kong, and next summer we'll be flying to Nanjing as our newest and seventh destination. So we're really excited and we're putting a lot of effort. And many times here in, in Europe, I get asked the question, what have you done right at Finnair? Why, how can you go to seven different cities and what's working for you? What are you doing right? And <clears throat> I would say that, that, that one of the main factors is building the trust. Finnair has been flying to Beijing for 30 years. Next summer, June the 1st, we'll be having our 30-year anniversary that we truly plan to celebrate because it is big. There are not many airlines who can say that they have been flying for 30 years. Finnair was the first European airline to connect Europe with Beijing. Finnair was the first European airline to connect Europe and Xi'an. Finnair was the first European airline to connect Europe with Chongqing. Finnair was the first airline to fly commercial flights with the newest technology, the Airbus 350, into China. We were the first airline to bring this great technology that Airbus has used many years to make the customer experience as good as possible, 
And we were proud to bring it as the first airline into Beijing, into Shanghai, and Hong Kong. <clears throat> and this is part of building the trust, but at the same time, for you to be able to, to have any successes in the Chinese market, I believe that you also have to have a bit of innovation. You also have to be a little bit creative. You have to also take a little bit of risk. These are all matters that if you're able to align these with the right partners, you have a true chance for success. And <clears throat> an area that's not discussed as much, but I think is just as important in regards to how a company looks at, at doing business in China is your strategy. Strategy sometimes is, is used too lightly in regards to our strategies to be here and to be there. And the whole organization is not behind that strategy. At Finair, be it our teams in China, or be it at head office, be it in IT, finance, HR, marketing, sales, or our digital departments, China is at the top of our list. We all in the company talk the same language in regards to what the objectives are. We have a clear roadmap in regards to what we want to accomplish over the upcoming years. And everyone contributes to that strategy. So it's not isolated in some area of the organization. And I think this is key if you do want to succeed. You have to be aligned with what's happening locally and what's happening at the head office. And, and, and this is something that's not discussed as much in regards to how you can improve your business. But I, I think it's extremely important when you, when you look at it on, on the China side. You have to also truly understand what's happening in China. I've said in a, in a few of these seminars that I think that in Europe, when we look at our digital, digital knowledge and how we use digital tools, I say we're slightly dinosaurs. <laughs> and, I, and, and, and sometimes I get a look that, what's he, what, what's he really saying? But if you have been in China and you have seen how the digital tools are used in the everyday life, how that can be used in your business, then I think a majority would, yes, he is actually correct. We are slightly dinosaurs in regards to how we use digital capabilities in business. Alipay, which is a normal payment method for the Chinese for everyday purchases, Finnair was the first airline to bring Alipay for onboard purchases during flights. I thought this was sensational and at the same time slightly unbelievable. And again, we're very proud of that but making the Chinese passenger accustomed to make it easy, smooth, when they travel on Finnair. And the same applies for us as, as an industry. Are we ready to take the Chinese in regards to making their travel and vacation here in Europe smooth? I've, every time nowadays that I go to a hotel in Europe, my first question is, before they even ask for my credit card, is, do you take Chinese payment methods? And they look at me sometimes kind of strangely, but <laughs> I do ask that because I want to get my own survey in regards to how ready are we as an industry. And unfortunately, all too often, they say, yes, we take Visa and MasterCard. <laughs> so, so, so we're not quite yet at that stage. Finnair was the first foreign airline to also open an active account on WeChat, not through LinkedIn solutions or, or, or deep links, but to truly be part of the WeChat ecosystem. This is something that we brought to the market just a few weeks ago, and again, extremely proud of that. Finnair was the first airline to try something completely out of the box. JD.com, if you're aware of, of, of that site. Finnair was the first foreign airline to, 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 to open a flagship star, store on the JD.com platform. So again, these are initiatives that Finnair has taken, but these would not have been able to, to, to actually materialize 
if our head office wasn't in line. These are matters that could not happen in our local organization where our local IT people start to you know, code to allow us to get onto these sites and build a flagship store. It needs the resources from our HQ to actually get that live, and if we're not aligned, at the end of the day, it'll just be the talk, and it won't actually be the walk, as they say in... in, 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 in so, 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 Miko, if I could just interrupt for, uh, for a minute. So, what are, so these are all very, very important initiatives, and of course, you're almost you know, part of the system, the ecosystem, as you call it. What are the challenges you face, and what are the sort of lessons you've learned over this 30-year experience? Uh, there's also a long list of lessons to be learned. You'll have to be short, but give us. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, uh, I think one of the critical matters is finding the right partners. H how do you, China is so full of different par partners from small startups to, to, to enormous companies that how do you choose the right ones where you truly find that, that true benefit for both? And I think that's where one of the challenges is, is, is how do you... How do you navigate yourself through that enormous Chinese market that has so many wonderful opportunities when a company such as Finnair only has X amount of resources that, that when we start doing something, we don't have many, many chances for trial and error, that, that you almost have to get it right on the first or second one. So I think this is one of the challenges when you look at China, but there are so many opportunities. I think by far the opportunities outweigh the challenges. Right. Okay. That's a very upbeat and very, very optimistic uh, assessment. Thank you very much for that. And based on your, on, on your knowledge and your experience. So that's very valuable. Thank you, Miko. So let's turn now to Xining Song. So Xining Song, is it, is it enough in this European uh, China year of tourism to just bring the people? Does that work? I mean, just people coming here or Europeans going to China, does that increase understanding and mutual trust? Just the, just the movement or does something more have to happen? Uh, yes, I think so, but uh, uh, it also depends. So uh, uh, when we talk about uh, EU-China relations, uh, we always say there are three pillars, uh, political and strategic dialogue, uh, economic cooperation, and people-to-people -people, uh, exchange. So then uh, we are talking about uh, tourism. Uh, so uh, where is the tourism? So it seems to me that is uh, part of both uh, economics and cultural, uh, or people-to-people -people dialogue. Uh, when we uh, look at uh, tourism as part of the EU-China economic cooperation, I think Anna has mentioned a lot, uh, tourism industry, especially Chinese uh, outbound uh, tourism, uh, is growing very fast. Uh, so although there's still the deficits, that means uh, more foreigners uh, come to China than Chinese travel abroad. Uh, but uh, if we say the uh, uh, last year, the outbound Chinese tourism uh, actually was uh, uh, 122 billion. Oh. Uh, so it's a big. Uh, uh, in terms of the number, it's a big number. Uh, so uh, it's uh, also the uh, consumption of Chinese uh, outbound tourism. Actually, it's 20% uh, of the uh, total uh, world uh, consumption of the tourism. That's also a very big. So it's a big market. So uh, uh, if we say the first half of uh, 2017, uh, the increase uh, of the uh, Chinese outbound tourism is also increased, although it's not very uh, big. Uh, but in terms of uh, 120, 100 million, so uh, it's a small percentage, it's a big number. Uh, 
So uh, uh, also, uh, uh, according to Madam Yang, the former uh, Chinese uh, ambassador to the EU, uh, several, I think last uh, month, uh, he, uh, or several, uh, two months ago, she mentioned there would be more than uh, 700 million uh, Chinese tourists in the next five years. So we know that's a big market. Uh, so, but if we look at uh, Chinese tourism, uh, tourists to Europe, actually it's not very positive. Really? It's not very positive. Uh, there was a decrease last year, uh, except the uh, Chinese tourists to uh, Central Eastern European countries. So it's very interesting. It's a big decrease in the East, uh, Western Europe, but there's a big increase of Central and Eastern Europe. It's uh -huh. increased 229% so last year. Okay, so, so more people are going to Yeah, Eastern. to Eastern Europe. So uh, Central Eastern Europe, especially Poland, uh, the Czech Republic, uh, Hungary. So uh, it's very interesting. That's the currently is uh, probably is the most uh, popular destination of Chinese tourists to Europe. Uh, so uh, if we also say... Uh, Which one's uh, Xining? Uh, Poland uh, and think, Hungary? Uh, uh, several. Poland, Czech Republic, uh, Hungarian, Serbia, and uh, Slovenia. Uh -huh. So that's uh -huh. uh, according to the uh, Chinese uh, travel agencies. That's now is the most popular uh, destination for Chinese to come to Europe. And this year, uh, I heard that uh, uh, this year is uh, much better. It's increased. Uh, but uh, still... Uh, not uh, such. So I think it's the big increase for this year is also Central Eastern Europe and Nordic. And Nordic. So that's a very interesting. It's not uh, Western Europe. Mm -hmm. So if we uh, uh, look at the uh, first uh, 20 destinations for Chinese outbound tourists, usually uh, uh, the top 10 always in Asia. But uh, this year, it's a little bit different. United States. This year, United States ranked number six. Uh, so number one still Thailand. So uh, United States number six. Uh, what about Europe? Italy number 13. Germany number 14. UK number 17. France, that's very strange, number 20. Huh. So it's not... Uh, 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 very so. Although we know that Beijing and Paris, they're direct flights, free direct flights every day. So, but still, uh, not uh, such uh, a big number. So, but we know that's the uh, uh, the reason for this. Yeah, I was going to uh, ask you what are the yeah, reasons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh, if we say that uh, the uh, total number according to uh, yeah, so different uh, statistics. So if we see, and uh, last year actually the uh, Chinese tourists to Europe is uh, only five million. It's uh, four percent of uh, Chinese uh, outbound tourists. So and Europeans uh, coming to China was only uh, three million. So uh, it's uh, uh, two percent of the foreign tourists to China. So we know that it's not. So what the reason? Uh, I think we all know that first the uh, security situation in the, in Europe. So the uh, tourist attacks. So in Europe, it's uh, a big uh, impact about China, uh, the Chinese. Uh, uh, and second, we know that's expenses. So uh, travel to Europe is still quite expensive for Chinese. Uh, so uh, if we look at the uh, uh, consumption of Chinese outbound tourists, so at, uh, average 
so uh, two thousand uh, amount two thousand euro per person. So it's uh, spent by Chinese. So, uh, but uh, when we look at Chinese come to Europe, it's a uh, uh, much longer time because the average is uh, uh, 11 days. Uh, and the average uh, 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 expenses for the uh, Chinese is uh, 3,200 euro. Okay. That's uh, much higher. So it also means it's much expensive for Chinese. Uh, so travel to Europe. Uh, so I think that's a uh, uh, kind of reason. So uh, that's also why uh, most of Chinese prefer travel to Asia. So it's because especially if you look at uh, uh, Thailand, Japan, South Korea, it's much cheaper. Uh, so uh, third, I think the visa issue. Uh, we know that there's uh, uh, 153 countries are tourist destination for Chinese. Among them, uh, 65 countries provide visa facilities treatment. It's a kind of uh, uh, easy way to mm. get visa for Chinese to travel to the 65 countries, but none of them EU members. Uh -huh. So we know that's uh, uh, also the problem. Uh, and also the uh, tourist fee also uh, much higher than others. Uh, so that's the visa issue. Uh, so finally, I think it's also the culture and the language problem. Uh, we are talking about the EU-China as a partner of civilization and culture, uh, but we still have problems. Uh, uh, Chinese still prefer to Asia countries, uh, uh, even to the United States, than to Europe. So I think that also refers to this kind of thing. I think that is uh, referred to the second uh, aspect of EU-China tourism. That's... Uh, uh, we say it should be part of the people-to-people uh, -people dialogue, people-to-people uh, -people exchange. Uh, in terms of EU-China partnership of civilization and culture, uh, the elder generation of Chinese have more sense about this, uh, but not the uh, younger generation. Another very interesting figure, uh, Chinese travel to Europe. More than 50% uh, are people more than 50 years old. <laughs> uh, so that's the uh, older generation prefer to come to Europe. The younger generation prefer to go to the United States. Uh, so that also refers to the uh, cultural uh, issue. Uh, so uh, 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 that's, I think, is uh, very interesting. So uh, it seems to me uh, the uh, culture issue, the people-to-people -people exchange issue is uh, very important. Mm. Uh, I think it's very important to have uh, EU-China tourist year uh, next year. Uh, but I think uh, another very important uh, target for the, uh, this is the younger generation, yeah. or we, we say the future generations okay. uh, in China. So uh, now they're... Uh, lots of uh, activities uh, supported by the Chinese university to support Chinese students to come to Europe for short-term visits. Now it's more and more. So like my university, this year we have uh, had 200 uh, students supported by the university to come to Europe for two, right. three weeks. So uh, currently a group of my uh, right, yeah. Yeah, university students are in Brussels. Uh, so uh, that, I think, is a very uh, important target for uh, Thank uh, you, Xinyi. Yeah.
Did you bring them here? Uh, Did you bring those students here? No. No, no. Now they, okay. are, uh, they are in, uh, at VUB and then they will, they will go to the European Parliament. Okay. <laughs> okay. So uh, I think, you know, uh, there are three uh, southern Chinese universities. If one university sends 100 uh, students, how many? Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, great figures and great insights. Uh, appreciate it. I know both of you are dying to come in, Miko and Anna, but I'm going to give you, just, just let me take the other panelists as well, and then I'll give you the floor before I turn to the audience. So let's, uh, let's now go to Frantisek. So you've heard a lot of the comments from uh, the three previous speakers. Let's have your insights on this year of tourism. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, well, uh, the European Travel Commission is, um, is kind of an association of, of uh, European and national tourism organizations. And we will be also uh, the ones who planned and will be implementing the marketing activities of the EU-China Tourism Year next year. Um, I would like to describe uh, generally some of the activities we, we are going to do. But before that, um, I would like to touch upon a few things that, 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 that's been said here so far. First, the relationship between tourism and, and, and the cultural exchange. Uh, well, I would like to cite the president of the ETC um, because... Back when I was still not working full-time in the ETC, uh, I was uh, the, the chairman of the operations group of the ETC in China. And um, the first time I met uh, Mr. Peter De Wilde, the president of ETC, he said that uh, tourism actually is cultural exchange. What, what else it is, bringing people from one destination to another, meet, uh, let them meet each other and learn from each other. So I think this is this is a this is a very very important thing um, to say. Uh, now, of course, um, we are facing uh, uh, a lot of a lot of problems in the flow of Chinese tourism uh, to Europe and uh, of finding the right partners, as Miko mentioned, and uh, uh, etc. So um, also. Uh, because of this reason, uh, the ETC uh, designed a series of marketing activities, or, or let's say a group of marketing activities, that will be implemented next year on, uh, on the Chinese market. And we would like to uh, touch upon all the different areas that are important in Chinese market. So, on one hand, um, we don't want to be the digital dinosaurs, so we are preparing uh, a focus on a lot of online activities. Uh, we will be working with the major uh, Chinese um, uh, online tourism agencies, online tourism operators, uh, which is now the most important space for bookings from China. 56% mm -hmm. of hotel bookings uh, are done online and on mobile phone in China. So. That is uh, an, a very important space. Then, of course, social media. Uh, a strong focus uh, of the ETC will go uh, on uh, social media, on WeChat and Weibo and all the important social media that we don't have here, but that are so big in China. There is now 720 million of internet users of, uh, in China, and everybody has a WeChat. So... It's, it's, uh, it's a very, very big market there. 
but we will not only be targeting uh, uh, the B2C segment, we also uh, want uh, the stakeholders of our members and the businesses to have uh, their space in our uh, marketing activities. Uh, that's why uh, we designed for the first time uh, what Anna already mentioned, the so-called uh, joint promotion platform. What it actually will be, uh, it will be opportunity for partners, for national tourism organizations, for uh, European regions, and even for European private industry to join our activities and to have their space in what we will be doing, to get their visibility, uh, to share our resources. So uh, the ETC will design uh, a specific packages of services that will be offered to, as I said, the national tourism organizations, regions, and even uh, private industry or their consortia to kind of chip in our uh, marketing activities in the market. And uh, like that, we will help them to enter the market, which is one, I think, of uh, the most uh, important tasks for the EU-China Tourism Year, to open the doors for European uh, companies and regions to be seen. Uh, mentioning the regions, um, I think when we were talking here about uh, the Eastern European increase uh, and stuff like that, I don't think it's a necessary bad thing as such. Uh, meaning that what we will be trying to achieve during the activities of EU-China Tourism Year is also to introduce the lesser known regions to the Chinese market. Because, uh, okay, there was a number mentioned, five million of Chinese tourists to Europe. Uh, I'm sorry, our numbers say something different, say 12 million, but this number is not as important. It's not about the quantity, right? It's about the quality of the tourists mm. and it's about the distribution. Because I don't think it matters uh, if 5 million or 12 million people come to one place in Europe because that's not sustainable. <laughs> we want to introduce them the all beauties we have, there, have here. And uh, the first thing that's been already mentioned here, and I will just quickly repeat it, is the Light Bridge project. So we hope uh, that even the lesser known destinations will participate in, in the project and uh, on the night of the 2nd of March next year, uh, the sites will light up in red and uh, thus kind of symbolically uh, express their participation in the EU-China Tourism Year. Thank I you. think I will end here. Yeah, there will be questions, Frantisek, so uh, we'll come back to you. Let's take Xuantan uh, now. Xuantan, uh, let's have your comments as well about what you've heard. The good story and the not-so-good story. Thank you very much. And first, once again, I'd like to say that I'm very uh, grateful for your invitation to be part of this panel. I think it is really very complete. As you could see, this panel has already uh, united uh, academic representative and also institutional aspects and also business partner players. 
and also finally industry uh, industry association and also us, the cultural organization. So here I'm um, representing the committee of the China Arts Festival in the EU, and as we have been already uh, going through, we are we are really, really working at the level for the people-to-people -people, uh, exchange and also people-to-people -people dialogue. Um, here I would like to mention one fact is that actually the cultural cooperation and also the people-to-people, -people, uh, uh, institutional people-to-people -people, um, exchanges um, has been quite recent, actually. The very first policy dialogue, I think it has been launched uh, at, at the year of the 2009, um, where we have finally identified uh, jointly by the uh, European Commission and also the, uh, the Chinese Ministry of Culture three main areas of the common interest, which are cultural diversity, cultural and the creative industry, and the preservation of cultural heritage. But nowadays we could see the next year is the EU China Tourism Year, which has, uh, as a matter of fact, extended um, the, the, the content of this uh, dialogue and also, also of this uh, cooperation. And um, so our festival has been launched uh, three years ago uh, on, the, on the occasion of the EU-China uh, 40th anniversary for the diplomatic ties. Why we have launched this? Because following this very first policy dialogue between the Europe and China, there has been a series of important cultural events and activities but organized at the bilateral level, so between China and also the member states, such as the very first one, China and, and France, they have launched, uh, I think, back to uh, 2003 and 2005, the Sino, uh, Sino French Culture Year, and followed by the Spanish Culture Year, Greek Culture Year, Germany Culture Year, and also like Chinese, uh, China as the guest of honor. Uh, here in Belgium to the International Festival Europe, Europalia, etc., etc. Um, and for example, last year it was also the, the, the bilateral cultural year between Denmark and China. All of this bilateral cultural year uh, aside, um, we don't really have a permanent, uh, permanent platform for the, for the two-way exchanges at the real EU level. Though, I think back 10 years ago, we have um, on 2012, we had one year of EU-China uh, cultural dialogue, mm -hmm. yeah, intercultural dialogue here. But afterwards, there's no uh, institutional organizations who has been the heritator for this exchange. That's why three years ago, uh, under the support of several uh, partners, we have launched this platform. And um, what is our belief for this platform, for this China Arts Festival in the EU, um, who showed, showed to be also China EU culture, uh, culture and Arts Festival? It's because we think the culture is the source of knowledge sharing, knowledge sharing, awareness uh, raising, etc. It is also a tool for other sectors, for example, for inspiration, uh, for, the, for the collaboration uh, to, in the sector of the social innovation and cohesion. And of course, it's also a stimulus um, to the imagination and creativity. And besides of that, we have also several economic objectives. So very first one, as we have mentioned already, with the, with the common, uh, the, the, the area of the common interest is the, uh, what we call uh, the economy of culture. 
economy of culture based on the CC, CC's creative creative industries. And also second, now we could see also the big potential we could identify and also find in the collaborations and also in the pushing forward exchanges between, uh, between you China in the tourism uh, related sector. Also based on that, our, uh, our festival has also launched a project under the support of our, also our colleagues of D, from the DG Grow, who's in fact organizing the, 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 the program across next year, you China Turin, is our wow displaying um, project. Right. So basically, it's a project where we combine the arts, the very much advanced technology, which is augmented, augmented reality, and also the regional promotion and the tourism promotion. I think we will be releasing all details um, at the end of the next year, but for the moment, we are really grateful for the support we have gained from the institutional framework of the EU-China Tourism Year, the DG Grow, and also several, uh, uh, several regional uh, governments from China, um, in particular from the Shanghai municipality. Thank you so much, uh, Xuantan. Thank you very much also for giving us the, the combination of e economy, culture, technology. Uh, right. I'm going to come back to you too because I know you're dying to say something, but let's take a few questions and when you respond to the questions, give, it, give us what you want to say. So please uh, just raise your hand, identify yourself, and let me know uh, if there's any specific panelists you want to speak to or if uh, all three, of, sorry, five of them are ready to speak. So I already have one hand going up, Uwe. So just, uh, could you bring the microphone right here in the front row, please? Thank you. Yes, I see you, David, please. And any, anyone else, please, as well. Uwe, please. Yeah, Introduce thanks very yourself. much. My name is Uwe Wissenbach. I'm uh, working for the EES. I'm here, obviously, in my private capacity. Um, but traveled to China since 93, a couple of times in Finnair's good connection. Uh, <laughs> but um, for me, from the panel, it's become clear that the economic, economic rationale of the tourism is, is pretty straightforward. And in, in particular with Asian tourists, Chinese tourists, I mean, a lot of them come to shop. <laughs> and I suppose a lot of, the, um, lot of the destination variations have to do with exchange rates as well. Um, but I want to challenge a little bit that sort of simple equation of more tourism means more cultural understanding. Um, and I think it also plays with the stereotypes that people have on different behaviors, which are not necessarily just stereotypical, but they tend to be, there tend to be some truth in it. And the, the issue of, let's say, the tourism infrastructure in Europe very much geared to individual tourists, family traveling, uh, people trying to have a local experience. When a Chinese tour, tourism group comes to Europe, they're not looking for that same type of experience. I mean, they want to take a selfie with the Mona Lisa because it's famous, not because they're interested in European Renaissance art or something like that. Um, when they sit in, in hotels, um, the rooms are open, the doors are open, uh, people play cards, uh, eat fang bian mian, and are pretty noisy. So you clearly have a clash with the, uh, with the uh, European, typical European family that seeks to have a nice quiet evening uh, and a nice dinner down in the restaurant. <laughs> And the hotel owners are probably not very happy that people eat fang <laughs> okay, well, yeah. get to the so, point. So, um, what, what are you... No, I mean, I just wanted to challenge that a little sure, bit and tease absolutely. out a little bit what your responses are to this, because I think uh, furthering, let's say, mass tourism 
on the basis of economic revenue for shops, uh, airlines, and all that, all that is all fine. But in terms of cultural understanding, aren't we creating more trouble than than uh, than than we need? I mean, it's not only typically Chinese. I mean, tourism right. in general has that kind of uh, difficulty, right. and it hasn't so been no addressed. So no Gucci tourism. Panel. Let's let's be more yeah. into the culture. Thank you. Let's we we will we'll come back. We'll come back. Uh, let me just take one more, David. David Chung, yeah. Uh, thank you, Shada. Uh, it's a very simple question to uh, the Professor Song. You just mentioned uh, last year uh, less uh, tourists to Europe than the uh, United States. You just mentioned uh, several reasons, including the long distance, uh, the, the more days duration, and the visa application problems. But I, I, I personally think the terrorist attack and the security concern is. Uh, is is also very right. important. Where do you think so? And what the United, uh, what the European Union can do to reassure or restore the confidence of the Chinese tourists about this? That's my question. Right. Thank you. Did the other David want to come in as well? David Fouquet, please. Then we'll go back to the panel. Yes, thank you. Um, the dark side of tourism has been mentioned. I read uh, this is just a couple of uh, random. Um, comment, comments, <laughs> okay. questions too. What are we okay, doing good. about it? I was reading maybe a few days ago about an attack on a tourist bus in one of the favorite uh, Western European destinations. The gang used tear gas, um, stripped all the uh, the passengers of their money, gifts, so uh, crime. purchases, and so on. Crime, so yeah. what is the industry doing about this? Anything? The other, the other element I would like to point out is also not mentioned, but I think it's a factor, UNESCO. It is the United Nations educational, scientific, and cultural organization. I think since the withdrawal of the US, um, Europe, China have a special responsibility to keep the organization going, lively, um, and active. And it encompasses all the things we've been talking about. Right. Thank you very much. Let's go back to the panel. Miko, let's start with you. Go to Anna later. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you. I, I think I'll touch on, on, on the segmentation is, is basically what I, I would put it on. And this kind of links to, one, to the earlier where it was it the majority of, of Chinese travelers to Europe were over 50 years of age. Or, or This comes down to also how you as a business, you know, you know the customer, you know the customer behavior, you know what the desires and needs are of that. If we look at, at, the, at the passenger demand or, or the tourism demand from China into Finland, if we measure it in regards to overnight stays, we're up about 40% versus previous years, and, and, and it, it's growing on a very good base. We see a lot of individual travel of segments of under 30 traveling to Finland. We see a lot of, a lot of couples, a lot of honeymooners, and, and, and so on coming. So I think it... it, it it, it depends on how you segment, on how you then market to that segment, how you find the channel that 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 sells to that segment. I, I think that's you know a, a very important step in regards to how you want to overall look at 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 at, at that area. Um, shopping was mentioned, and and this again comes to the stereotypes in regards to shopping is very important to the Chinese. But if you look at the at the FITs and that growing segment of the luxury travel. 
shopping doesn't come at the top of the list anymore. It, it, it comes more to that experience, which is that general global tourism trade. They want that experience where that selfie might be there. But if you look at Finland, we don't have a Big Ben, we don't have a Champs-Élysées or an Eiffel Tower, or we don't have the Colosseum. What do we have as, as a country? What does Finland offer? It's mainly experiences. We have, you know, the winter, you know, yes. <laughs> Laugh because you don't live there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we have the winter. We have, you know, the aurora borealis and, and magic. We build that experience around the magic in regards to, hey, do you want an experience that you cannot experience in many other places? We have the midnight sun during the summer, another experience that you cannot, cannot you know, just grasp. So, so I think it, it, as a business, as a city, as a visit organization, if you look at be it visit Finland or visit Belgium or, or visit Europe, it, it's how you package that that you want to sell. Who do you want to package to? And, and I think this is where we do have a lot of work in regards to what segment are we after. Group travel has been that, you know, that traditional you know, Chinese tourism way, but that, that FIT segment is growing extremely fast. And, and are we ready to cater for that? And I think the EU-China tourism year is one answer to that. Quick comment on, on the visas. I think visas is a challenge for Europe where we do have basically one EU, but we do have different varying requirements in regards to the visas. And I think this does make it also a bit of a challenge in regards to hopefully being discussed during also the tourism year. But thanks. But Miko, the, 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 the terrorism and the crime issues that have been raised, I mean, uh, have you seen a drop uh, in your traffic uh, during the last few years when there's been a sort of... We do see a change. We do see a change in regards to the traffic. I mean, uh, if we look at, at the top destinations that Finnair sold out of China, they were traditionally, they were Paris, Rome, Milan. These were the top three, no matter what the year was prior to 2015, basically. Mm -hmm. If we look at what has happened over the last couple of years... Paris and Rome are still there. 2016, it dipped, and it dipped quite heavily. We're talking 30-odd percent. 2017, it has come back, but not to that level that it was. And who have been the winners, as it was mentioned, in, or in regards to cities? Scandinavia, the Nordics. This has been a definite winner when we look at, 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 mm -hmm. at, at, at tourism amounts. But also, Eastern Europe, especially Prague, Budapest, and Poland. So exactly what, is, what was mentioned earlier from the studies, we see the same trend happening in regards to the travel that on, on, on Finnair. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. and I, but I think this also plays to the, to the development of the trends of the tourist in regards to wanting that adventure. Did you know that if you look at polar tourism, so Arctic and, and Ar Antarctic tourism, one-third of all those tourists are Chinese. Mm. And, and you don't go there for the Louis Vuitton. You go there for the experience. So yeah. in that sense, it's, it, 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 it just says that the experience industry is something that we as Europe, mm. on top of all the history and the great attractions that we have, that's something that we have to be ready for. Mm. What is that experience that we want to offer? Ah, great. great insight. So uh, the ice hotels and the rest of it, in, in a sense, right? Okay, thank you very much. Anna, would you like to come in now? And also this question that Uwe raised about does more tourism mean more cultural understanding? Yes. Yeah. But I will not start uh, with that, actually. No. I just want to uh, pick up uh, uh, from what the previous speaker was saying. Um, we cannot think of tourism or the tourism market as something static. It's actually something extremely volatile. And a number of factors play into it from one year to the next, from one even season, if I could say, to the next. And our job at the policy uh, level, but also much more at the industry level, is exactly to uh, make sure that we read those trends 
and we develop uh, an offer that responds to those trends. So, for instance, our reading of the Chinese uh, traveler uh, kind of converges with what has been said so far, but the numbers don't necessarily, uh, uh, you know, glue together. That's another issue. Now, uh, our reading is that the Chinese, uh, the average Chinese, if you like, traveler, comes to Europe for the culture, not for the shopping. Um, that indeed we don't attract the youngest. So one of our uh, targets uh, and our targeted effort during uh, next year. Uh, in the context of the EU-China Year of Tourism, it would be actually to develop this sort of transnational tourism offer that can attract younger Chinese, uh, we call them millennials. Uh, some talk has been uh, um, uh, made about the FITS, it's the free individual travelers. Uh, we are, I think we would agree on one point that uh, uh, middle class in China is booming, is growing, and beyond the main cities, also in second-tier cities. So we want to tap into this untapped uh, market for us so far, uh, to attract uh, those Chinese that perhaps have been to Europe before, that have the financial means to come, because indeed, uh, compared to emerging destinations in Asia, Europe is more expensive, for reasons that we all understand. Um, and attract these Chinese uh, affluent, if I may say so, Chinese, to come back to Europe to lesser known destinations, not necessarily to go to the top European destinations in order to add even more to the mass tourism that goes there. We don't need the numbers there, but we need numbers in other European destinations that are equally exciting, equally interesting, and can offer an experience, and actually a diverse experience. Mm -hmm. Because something else that we have seen actually in the profile of the Chinese uh, tourist is that they're more open to experience tourism. As, for instance, they're more open to um, cruise tourism, we mm -hmm. have seen. So that's why in our efforts we will try on this joint promotional platform to develop offer on mm -hmm. coastal tourism in Europe, mm -hmm. uh, targeting more the, youngers, the younger Chinese. So there are some, uh, some elements there. Now, um, just one word on the numbers perhaps and uh, the visa. Um, our number for uh, the Chinese uh, travelers to Europe is still different from those two mentioned, closer to your number, though, than yours. But I will not mention it because I still want to dig with my colleagues into what's lying behind the numbers. But what I could say is an interesting trend that we saw in the numbers, because you understand statistics, it's something that you can bend either way, depending on the story you want to say. I don't intend to, stay, to say a story today, but just to share with you a first insight into the numbers that we saw. Indeed, there is a slight decrease in the number of visas issued uh, to uh, Chinese uh, in 2016 compared to the previous years. For instance, in 2015, we had uh, an over 30% uh, increase. So we had a boom and then a slight drop. Um, but uh, within this slight drop, there is a sharp increase of more than 30% of um, tourism uh, perhaps, uh, mm -hmm. of, sorry, of business-related tourism. Uh, because we have the single visas, but we also have the multiple entry visas. Mm -hmm. And there you cannot count the numbers. You don't know how many times one the same person has right. come in. But we have seen that perhaps this increase of, of uh, multiple entry visas implies an increase of business-related travelers right. to Europe, which is something interesting for us. Um, on the visa, uh, there is an ongoing dialogue mm -hmm. on mobility and migration. These two are linked. 
the visa facilitation is linked to the fight against illegal migration. Um, maybe one file is easier to tackle compared to the other, but they go hand in hand, and that, right. uh, in a way, uh, creates delays. We do hope that uh, next year, um, the year that we will be celebrating on tourism, will help create some sort of positive momentum politically for the visa facilitation the dialogue. But it works both ways. I mean, going to China, sometimes you can get a multiple entry and sometimes you can't. Yeah. It works both ways. Yeah. But, but indeed, there the EU uh, compared, uh, if you like, to our global competitors, the US, Canada, or also Australia, etc., who um, offer 10-year uh, yeah. uh, visas, uh, for Chinese travelers, there yeah. the EU is lagging behind, and it's right. clearly an area uh, that uh, deserves our attention. Right. I you. haven't raised your point, but I have been talking for some time, <laughs> so right. I don't know I'll, whether I'll, I'll, you wish me to continue or stop. No, <laughs> I'll ask uh, Xining to come in for that point, if you don't mind, Anna. Yeah, please. Yeah. Uh, on that point also. Okay, so uh, first, uh, re re uh, refers to the uh, reasons uh, I have mentioned. The number one uh, consideration is the security. It's a security, it's a terrorist attack for the, uh, in Europe, so that's uh, big news in China, and also the uh, crime. So uh, I mentioned that a group of uh, students from my university arrived mm -hmm. yesterday, and one of them was uh, robbed the uh, day before yesterday in Paris. Uh, so uh, 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 that's, the, that's always the problem. So, uh, uh, <laughs> Yeah, but uh, as uh, Wu is a question, I think uh, if you look at the recent years, especially I think from 2015, there's slight change for the behavior or the style of the uh, tourists of Chinese coming to uh, Europe. Uh, before we know that Chinese always say, okay, so one week, five, seven countries. Uh, so that's, uh, uh, in Chinese we call that's uh, uh, tourist, tourism. Tourism is Liu it's not uh, vocation. Now, uh, as uh, Anna mentioned, also no more business uh, uh, tourism, or, uh, tourist, and also academic tourists. Uh, so that's, uh, and also lots of people uh, come to Europe is for vocation. State one country for one week. It's not like before. So in this sense, then I think there are more cultural elements inside. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just to look around. Uh, to stay there. Uh, so that's uh, a Changing kind of patterns. difference. Yeah, I think another thing, as I mentioned, so the, uh, uh, like educational uh, cultural uh, tourists uh, arranged by the university, arranged mm -hmm. by all those kind of things. So I think that's also, a, it's a real, uh, we, we say it's a, a cultural uh, tourism. Mm. So now I think more and more Chinese university has the capacity to support mm -hmm. their students to uh, uh, to go abroad. Mm -hmm. so, uh, but still, not many of them uh, choose Europe. So that's another problem. Mm. So, uh, because uh, my university, uh, every year we support something like 1,000 uh, 1, students to travel abroad so, uh, with the uh, university funds. So still lots of uh, people or lots of programs prefer to arrange students to go to the United States. Right. That's uh, still the problem. So. Thank you. Thank you, Xining. Uh, Francisek, would you like to come in on some of the questions? Um, yeah, uh, well, mo most of the points I have here has been already mentioned, the changing nature of the, or, or, of the Chinese tourists. Uh, of course, five years ago, uh, 
it was all the big groups, all the 10 countries in 10 days. Now, now we, we see the rise of FITs, we see the younger generation. If globally now uh, the people born in 80s uh, consist of 55, 56% of people going abroad from China. And, and I mean globally now, and as it's been mentioned, uh, most of them go to Asia still, but that's, that's the target, target group we need to target. Um, and then, of course, what uh, hasn't been mentioned yet is the China readiness of our destinations uh, mm -hmm. here in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, that's also uh, one goal uh, of uh, the EU-China Tourism Year, to here in Europe educate our businesses, our region, to be ready for Chinese clients, to be ready for even a different nature of Chinese clients, um, to speak Chinese, basically, if I can say it like that. At least, you know, on, on paper, to have right. more ch uh, Chinese language audio guides, etc., etc. Right. I, I could go into, into big details. Have you found, for instance, that Britain is, I mean, Britain is doing more in terms of having the Chinese, for instance, in Harrods, in Harvey Nichols. Sorry, I'm talking shopping. Uh, <laughs> yep. uh, well. there, are, there are Chinese uh, salespeople, for instance, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. That's one of, one of the points. Or I have here Denmark as a beautiful example. Uh, and also, yeah, it's about shopping, of course. Uh, but in the 19% of, uh, of the shops in Denmark, uh, Chinese people can use the Union Pay card. 90% already. Mm. Some countries are at 10, maybe, still. So this is also, to, uh, also the way, and it, it's been mentioned by Miko and Finer. Okay, yeah, they are, they are doing it. But union pay, that's an old thing now in China anyway. Uh, like plastic card, no, everybody has their mobile phone to pay. Yeah. So we have another step to take, and, and we need to be quick. Right. Uh, and yeah, and ATC and, and this, this uh, EU-China uh, Tourism Year initiative is here to help. Yeah, right. No, I, I remember being in China just three months ago and having such difficulty paying with a credit card. They wanted me to pay with Alipay or whatever, and I didn't have it. So next time I go, I will have it. I mean, there's no way, there's no way around it. So great, thank you. Uh, yes, go ahead, Miko. One minute, one minute. <laughs> go ahead. Helsinki Airport, as an example in regards to how we've localized ourselves for the, for the Asians overall, we have, every day we have Chinese customer service people. So we have on the Schengen as well as on the non-Schengen side, we have a service desk with only Chinese saying welcome to Europe or welcome to Finland. One Which or the one? Other. Which one? I think it's Finland. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but we have these desks with two Chinese helping out which way you're going, where's your connecting flight, are you staying in Helsinki, where you can pick up your bags, that's one. We have signage at the airport in Chinese, Japanese, and Korean. So, just as an example, do you think enough in regards to the customers that you are then, then servicing? Yeah, Shwanta, just very quickly. Yes, I would like just to uh, give a response yes. to the question related to the tourist uh, behavior. I think the very first is we have already discussed over the changes of this behavior, which is related directly also to the upgrading of the consumption of the Chinese tourists 
and also like Chinese middle classes. But secondly, I think regarding to the um, experience buildings, which mentioned also by Miko from Finir, it is where we could see the culture could play a quite important role. I will just mention two examples. The very first example is uh, is, the, um, uh, is related to Paris. If you like uh, the museum of, of Orangerie, if you, I, I, I'm sure that everybody here you know uh, about the Museum of Orangerie. This is li has been listed among the top 10 visited, uh, visiting spots uh, in Paris. Why? Um, Chinese people, they, they didn't uh, they didn't used to, uh, they, they didn't know about impressionist of of the French, but it was because uh, well fo following so the uh, Sino French cultural year, which could be dated back already to uh, two thousand three and two thousand five, where where, uh, where uh, France has organized a really big scale uh, exhibition of the impressionist um, paint, paintings, yes, in China, and even touring China, which have opened a very, very big yeah, door. And for the moment, the impressionist painting has been, has become, if I could say, especially for the middle classes, the common sense for their tourist experience here in France, for example. That's, what, that's how culture has been uh, participating also in the um, engage how, how to change their behaviors, um, uh, tourist behaviors, for example, traveling in Europe. Another example is um, what Miko has already mentioned, is the Finia Airport, because I, I myself, I am from Chongqing City, and I, I always travel with a Finnair uh, flight because you have a direct flight directly from Chongqing um, to Helsinki where I'm not supposed to take out my luggages in China. This is a big convenience. And I'm, I am shocked that, for example, um, since three years ago or two years ago, um, when I was traveling back to, 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 to China on the occasion of the Spring Festival, when I entered uh, into the Helsinki airport from Brussels, I have re received a red envelope, and when I open it, it was two like two two coins of chocolate. And I mean, this could be nothing. I think it's not really like uh, something of high cost, but it means something to us, to Chinese people. This is this is strength of culture, um, because you right. really feel welcome. You yeah. really feel sure. home. You feel that. At the Helsinki, you could find all this uh, spring festival atmosphere, which was really so cocooning yourself. And by the way, in Helsinki, you could find also restaurants serving all the red meals, red noodles. There's no single European <laughs> airport where you could find all these Korean, Japanese, and Chinese red noodles. I can't dare to say that. Wow. This is my okay. best experience <laughs> here in European <laughs> airport. So just as a conclusion... Culture does have an important strength in shaping the tourist behavior. Either it's in long term, either it's in short term. Like, give such an impression. Mm, thank thank you. you. Thank you very much. Uh, Anna, we have a f just two minutes. Do you want to come back to the question about does, I mean, Shuantan has answered it a bit, but do you want to come back? Yeah, quickly? So that at least we can end on a nice uh, touch, uh, linking again <laughs> a culture to tourism or tourism to culture. Um, it's not automatic. And I think I already mentioned it in my opening uh, remarks. It's a process that takes time. Uh, but if you don't uh, facilitate uh, exchanges in education, in culture, among young people, through tourism, 
um, then you have no openings mm. between cultures. And that's important, especially for cultures that have a rich past, a strong presence, and are physically located very far from each other. So in the case of EU and China, we do have elements in common when it comes to our relationship to culture, to heritage, to the past. We do have a big stake when it comes to um, supporting uh, culture and creative industries or contemporary artistic expressions and culture. And I think there we can build. Tourism can help in that. It takes time. It's a long process. Mm -hmm. And I think in the case of EU and China, it's, it's a question of building trust, being open, and being mutually committed. Hmm. Uh, okay. we, our, as I said, our small ambition is that this year will bring in another moment, again, for discussing these issues and helping perhaps to have a, a longer-lasting effect on the role of tourism in people-to-people -people, uh, dialogue between the EU and China, hmm. next to education, to culture, to youth, to gender equality, and recently, it seems, sport as well. Right. And to also bring it into the wider Europe-China relationship, which is, uh, I think, in need of constant energy and constant dynamism, and it needs to be constantly injected with energy. So I think this is a new, new um, let's say, energy that can come from culture and tourism. Thank you very much. And it shouldn't be an afterthought. I always feel that people to people in all these relationships is always put in as the third pillar, as the afterthought. And I think really in today's world, it should be the forethought. It should be right ahead, perhaps ahead of economy, trade and business, because that's where trust and mutual understanding comes from. So thank you very much indeed to the five panelists who I think have made this uh, story a really vibrant one and actually made us understand all the different challenges, but also the enormous, enormous opportunities that are out there if we play our cards right. So thank you very much indeed. Please join me in thanking Frantisek, Shuantan, Miko, Anna, and Shining Song. Now, we have tea at the back, tea ceremony, and we'll be back here at 11.15 for our next chapter, which is on uh, uh, soft power of China and Europe. Thank you very much. I know you're having fun. Please come back to your seats. Thank you very much. Hush. Okay, good. So thank you very much for uh, staying with us for the second chapter of today. Uh, so we live in a rather strange, topsy-turvy world where everything that we knew is no longer the way it used to be. I've just come back from uh, Asia. I was in Myanmar. And 
you really do feel the changed world order when you're in Asia. I think perhaps even more than when he you're here in Europe. So when I was there, you know, people were talking very much about the U.S. retreat. I mean, Trump had just gone across Asia, his uh, tour, and left, let's say, some rather uh, strong footprints, if you like, in the region. Um, and so it was clear that there was a U.S. retreat from, from the global stage and engagement in Asia the way it used to be. The bromances with the strong leaders are all very good, but policy and strategy does not depend on just strong men. Um, and, of course, everybody, but everybody's talking about the emergence of China uh, as, as a great global player, not just in the region, but across the globe, on issues to do with trade, with climate change, but a lot of talk also uh, about uh, China's emerging uh, soft power. Now, there is, we all know, a lot of skepticism across the West about China's soft power, but we here in Friends of Europe, we don't take anything at face value, so we decided we were going to explore this a little bit further. Now, President Xi Jinping in the 19-party Congress just recently said, China's cultural soft power and the international influence of Chinese culture have increased significantly. And he also talked about a new era for China and China's development. We all know about the 500 Confucius Institutes in 140 countries. Um, China's media, its fashion, its films are capturing international attention. And a rather interesting uh, new uh, development also was that a recent Pew public opinion poll showed that China and the U.S. are competing to be the more favored world power. And it said that U.S. and China engender roughly the same level of goodwill and said that China was particularly liked in Latin America and the Middle East and Africa as well, while the U.S. did better in Europe and the Asia-Pacific. So to take this conversation a little bit further, we've assembled a brilliant panel of, uh, let's say, people who work on cultural understanding, uh, artists, screenwriters, and an academic as well. So first let me start with Diogo Gilardoni. He's uh, an author really worth reading. He's written a book called Decoding China and writes regularly also for the South China Morning Post. And he's a cross-cultural management and communication consultant. And I think uh, somebody who really knows uh, that what he has called the wall of ignorance that surrounds our perceptions of each other, Europe and China. Also with us, David Chung. He's a PhD researcher at Utrecht University and counselor at the China Society for Human Rights Studies. So thank you very much, both of you, for being here. Also with us is uh, a Belgian uh, unrealistic, realistic painter, Elive de Jonge, and uh, she's an internationally recognized Belgian artist with a special relationship with China. She's worked in China, lived in China, and painted many aspects of China. So thank you very much for being here as well. Uh, Gao Shijun is Director General of the European Bureau of China Radio International, based in Paris, and thank you for coming as well. And Joan Xu, screenwriter and uh, a World Economic Forum's global shaper. So very, very happy to have all of you here. Going to kick off with you, Diego. And as I said in the beginning, you know, we live in a disorderly world, if you like, at the moment. The chips haven't really fallen, so we'll see how they fall. But when you look at Europe and China today, what are, your, what, are, what are your insights? Are we talking to each other? Do we understand each other? And what is the power of China's soft power? Well, do I have like a week to answer yeah. your question? Yeah. yeah. 
A so week in five minutes. Yeah, okay. The, the first thing I would like to say, first of all, good morning, everyone, and thank you for giving me this opportunity. I would say at first that uh, China today, in terms of soft power building with relations to Europe, it tends to take advantage of an extraordinary window of opportunity, which can be summarized in two worlds, Donald and Trump. <laughs> what is Donald Trump doing to American soft power in the last few months is amazing. And uh, jokes apart, uh, on the things that most matter for Europe as a whole thinking, like uh, global trade, multilateralism, uh, the fight against climate change, actually the position is closer to that of China than of the United States represented by Trump. So I think this is, in terms of general context, is a good thing, but then you have to capitalize on that, and this is not that easy. You can build soft power overnight. Definitely, uh, based on my experience with business clients or young people in university, as I realized that despite what has been done by China in terms of building soft power in the last few years, the great wall of ignorance about China is still very, very high even where you wouldn't expect, even among businessmen who are doing business on an international level, they think they have seen it all, but when it comes to China, it's still the old cliché that are very hard to die. And so how to break this wall? Uh, definitely uh, you need to be creative and uh, embrace the complexity of soft power building because soft power building is about building reputation. And you have a different reputation with different stakeholders. China has a different reputation with uh, young people in Sweden than old people in Portugal, or with businessmen or uh, farmers. I mean, you can have like a one-size-fits-all strategy, okay? Uh, you have to think about building reputation. It is reputation is not about what you say, but how it's been understood, okay? So you can have a very nice idea, but uh, if people don't understand it, uh, well, that's no point of uh, spending millions. Meaning, for example... Uh, CCTV, very good programs, but we should ask ourselves who is watching CCTV. Maybe Chinese around the world, or maybe Westerners who are already curious about China. But they are already curious about China, so they are less ignorant. We need to influence people who don't know anything about China. So uh, how to do it? You need uh, a multi-layered, complex strategy that combines moments like this, which are really important, uh, business training, university training, but also I think in terms of the public at large, a beautiful Chinese Bond girl, or eventually even a Chinese James Bond could do much more than many uh, seminars around the world. I think that uh, definitely you can't think about uh, soft power building through old uh, strategies. Also in terms of the communication, uh, CCTV or other uh, media strategies, a media channel of, the, uh, of China, you need to understand uh, that you can't just communicate through in a one-way uh, transmission system. You have to build a relational communication so that you have to really keep track of how people understand what you're saying. Otherwise, the billions you spent are just uh, wasted. Going back to what you were saying uh, at the beginning, we are in a very disordered uh, world. We need to bring it back to order. I think that both China and Europe uh, together can do a lot to do this. And I think that what China actually can do in the most effective way, beside of what I've just said, is through 
providing public goods, public goods. Joseph Nye, who is the uh, scholar who actually mm -hmm. coined the term uh, soft, power. soft power in a very interesting TED talk, said that you can talk about soft power as much as you want, but the best way to do it is to provide public goods. And how China can do it through the Belt Road Initiative, mm -hmm. through creating a new multilateralism where Europe can play a great role. So I would say that uh, if you want to uh, build a soft power strategy in the future, it must be a creative and complex and differentiated uh, strategy which include society, culture, economy, business, geopolitics in a uh, creative way. So Diego, uh, the role of a government, can government actually then you know, have a strategy of soft power? Is that something that governments can do or is it, has it got to come from from uh, the market, from business leaders, etc. And my second question really is, do you think the BRI can be, because we in, in Brussels, let's be very frank, there's a lot of skepticism in Europe as well about the value of BRI. You know, it's just a commercial venture, it's uh, surpluses from China going out there, being spent. Do you see it differently? Well, I don't know. I think it would be arrogant to, see, to say uh, what it is exactly, because I think even in Beijing they don't know exactly what it is. It is a blueprint. It's not something that China imposes on other people. Uh, unlike uh, other superpowers in the past and in the present, China has been very clear. Who wants to join, please join. Okay? Right. Unlike the previous uh, TPP uh, strategy of the United States, it was organized against, against China. So I think the, the framework is there, and I, I would say that it would be much more useful to, let's say, let's talk with Beijing, let's try to go over our differences and try to see what we can do together instead of saying, oh, it's just a way for the Chinese to uh, project their power, which is always part, obviously part of this, but uh, is it better to be part of it or being outside of that? Your second question was... It's about sorry. how governments can engineer yes. it. I mean, can they? Uh, definitely here there is, I think, a problem in the fact uh, of how the role of the government and the state is seen or perceived in Europe and in some countries especially, and in China, we know that in China also culturally, and it's not about just the, uh, the, the People's uh, Republic of China, it's been 2,000 years of tradition, so uh, the role of uh, the central authority is really important. And definitely in Europe, I think in some cases, uh, people would feel a little bit uh, worried when they see the hand of the government behind the soft power initiatives. Uh, what I can certainly say, based also on, on concrete experience, is that the best soft power can be uh, brought by private Chinese companies that invest wisely and through local entanglement where they invest. We have many examples of companies uh, coming from China and do a really bad job instead of not adapting to the local culture, to the local uh, political situation, and we have other companies that actually have understood that uh, in order to be successful on the long term, they need to invest in local entanglements, so creating jobs and, uh, and perspective. I think this is the best way to make people understand that Chinese are good people through uh, local entanglement by private companies. It's yes, as it was said before, by people-to-people -people exchange. But I think that the exchanges are still too small compared to what we would need in order to promote uh, 
China soft power uh, because if you if you think about university, I mean, university students who actually participate with China-related programs represent what 0.1 percent of the population. Right. So we can take them as a bellwether of the opinion. Right. Okay. We're going to come back to quite a few of the questions you've raised about investments and how they if they're done wisely can actually be a projection of. Uh, soft power. Let's, let's turn to David, David Chung. So at the 19th Party Congress, you know, the focus was on many, many things, of course, domestic. But when it was about the outside world, it was about a new era and uh, more confident uh, China when it comes to its culture and its soft power. Okay, thank you, Shadat. Well, it's a critical, important, and uh, historic event of the 19th National uh, Congress of the CPC. But uh, back to this, uh, before this, I want to discuss some abstract and theoretical issue sure. of what is soft power. We just discussed soft power, soft power. But what really soft power is, what different categories of soft power, what its origin, what its co-element we should have some notion about that. Sure. And soft power, this conception, firstly raised by the professor Joseph Nye at Harvard University, as we all know that, he said a soft power is the ability to persuade, attract others rather than coerce or force. Uh, it's different with the hard power, economic power, military power, or political power. So if you use the soft power wisely, combined with the hard power, we call that, uh, that smart power. Smart so power. It's, very, it's very important, okay? And uh, Joseph and I said the soft power has three categories or three origins of soft power, one from culture. So a country's culture is uh, one source of soft power. The other is the political values. The political values, in my understanding, is some normative issues. For example, human rights, rule of law, democracy, or social values, such like that. I know this is a very hot debate between the Western world and China about the human rights issue, about democracy, about rule of law, and China is always criticized by some Western friend. So uh, these political values or normative issues are very important for soft power. This is the second category of soft power. The third is a country's foreign policy or diplomatic discourse. It's also very important for soft power. Beside that, according to some Chinese academic research, some Chinese scholars said soft power have the two phases. In Chinese, it's run. You can, you can translate it to ran shi or ran quan What it means that soft power, the first or initial stage, it's just a resource power. It means you have culture, you have value, you have foreign policy, but it's just a capacity or resource power. It's not automatically... Uh, transform to the behavior power. Behavior power, that it's a real power. It's actuality of the soft power. So these two stages or two phases of soft power. Uh, if you want to, from the resource power to be a real behavior power to influence others, they need some platform. They need some approach. They need some process. We call that public diplomacy or international communication. With that, all this transformation can be happened. That's why we are here. We have a face-to-face -face change. We have a people-to-people -people exchange. We have a cultural exchange. We have a tourist. That's the platform. That's the procedure. That's the approach to make the resource power become a real behavior power of soft power. So that's how I explained that. And uh, China, uh, if you discuss uh, the, the soft power issues, I think China should focus on, uh, firstly, its long history, its long tradition 
of Chinese culture. Soft power, this notion, is not a new thing in Chinese thinking, way of thinking or Chinese culture. In China, we have a lot of old sayings of soft power, although it's not conceptualized just like soft power, this, this, this notion, but it's, it's the same meaning. For example, we said uh, you should inf influence others by virtue, not by, uh, not by force, yi de ren. We also said uh, it's better to win other people's heart rather than uh, use, using your force. All those millions, so it's, it's embedded, it's rooted in the long Chinese history culture. Soft power is not a new thing for, for China. Secondly, and I think China, Chinese government, especially the Chinese government, should focus and emphasize many normative uh, issues that hold debates by, by China and other Western world. Uh, just uh, Diego said, the Chinese government maybe uh, invest a lot of resource and CCTV or another media's internationalization strategy. But as Diego observed, maybe it's not very efficient or still a lot of work to do. Uh, it's a hot debate here. For example, uh, from Arcana Royal Institute, it's a statistic and observation institute. It issued uh, Arcana Global Present Index last year. It said China ranks the second, just to follow United States, ranked the second as the global presence or global influence. But uh, the father of the soft power, the notion, the Professor Joseph Nye said China is not good at soft power promotion, still lead. Uh, to do a lot of work. So you see here, it's a cleavage, a place of these things. Right. So uh, back to the uh, political values, what the Chinese government can do. I now want to quote um, some sayings uh, from President Xi Jinping said mm -hmm. uh, about the human rights issue. President Xi said, there is nothing best but better in the field of human rights. We don't want to politicize human rights issues. We want to uh, do some real works about human rights step by step. So Roma is not built in one day. That's a human rights issue. And the president, she also said, democracy is the life of socialism. Democracy is also very important, but how to define democracy? Western always emphasized the, 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 the election, the general election, the elective democracy. But China uh, emphasized or, or paid a lot of attention to uh, so-called consultative democracy or deliberative democracy. The people can join the discussion, the real the, the discussion about what the things need to do. And about the, the rule of law, President Xi also said, judicial work is aimed at uh, achieving social fairness and justice as core values. So, so uh, if you discuss these long-term issues, you found the Chinese leader, the highest leader, and the Chinese government also discuss law and pay a lot of attention about that. I think that's what we can do to promote the soft power. The last, uh, when we talk about the platform approach and the process, uh, such like that, the forum, the seminar, we, we should have lots uh, and more and more, and we have a lot of face-to-face, people-to-people exchange. And the president, she also said, the friendship between the two countries is based on the affection between the people. So people-to-people exchange is very, very important. It's a uh, public diplomacy or international communications. Okay. Right. Uh, based all this, uh, the last one I should uh, uh, mention is the Chinese government's the new uh, so, uh, foreign policies. Uh, one is the one bad one road mm -hmm. strategy. Mm -hmm. The other is the notion of the community of a shared future for humankind. So all these things combined together, you see cultural, political values, foreign policies. Mm -hmm. 
basically Chinese government can 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 do a lot and yeah, to promote the soft power. As the Professor Joseph Lai originally defined, what is soft power really? Thank okay, you. thank you, David. Thank you very much. I'm sure there'll be quite a few questions uh, from our audience on on the issues you've raised. But thank you for a very honest uh, appraisal of where things are at at the moment. Uh, let's turn now to the three practitioners that we have on our on our panel, and I'm going to kick off with Liv. Uh, Liv, you prepared something that you want to read. Please do f feel free to do so. So, uh, what are the from as an artist? What are for you? What are the recommendations that you would give? an audience like ours on how you, we should deal with soft power. Please. Thank you. Uh, I, I have to say, I uh, suppose you invite me as an artist, so I'm going to talk as an artist. I'm an artist. I'm not a businesswoman. I don't talk fluent English. I hope you can follow me. I prepare my answer, so excuse me, I'm going to read it to make it myself more easy. <laughs> so the four recommendations, right? Please. So if you uh, ask me, uh, is soft power important? Uh, uh, I say yes. I'm convinced that we can know each other better and come closer thanks to cultural exchanges. And when we understand each other better, or even more important, when we respect and accept each other's other better and our difference, the economic and political cooperation will be more smooth. So I have four suggestions. We should not leave cultural cooperation exclusively to the market forces. The market needs profits. In the culture domain, this will lead to showing again and again the same handful of successful names. Sure to make profits, but making the cooperative itself poorer. Or otherwise, nothing will happen because there is no profit. My suggestion is that governments should, should foresee the necessary budgets to promote cultural cooperation. Second, to have cooperation projects with maximal impact, I would suggest to involve, whenever possible, both partners in the cultural project. That means they should cooperate for all aspects of the project, content, um, organization, in all phases. Would it be possible to set up a kind of common working group to stimulate common culture projects? Three, to stimulate a better understanding and respect for each other's present society, a better understanding of the, understanding of the culture roots should be promoted. Then maybe we can also, also more accept each other's differences. One idea is showing together representative works of art from China and Europe from the same historical pe period. For example, exposing a Ming Dynasty landscape painting together with a 16th century landscape, European landscape painting. See the difference. You can do the same for other centuries other subjects, for example, religion. All those work are mirrors of the society that produce them and can learn the visitor to understand the societies and their influence on the today's thinking. Four, stimulating the dialogue between artists can be fruitful. One idea 
is to let Chinese and European artists produce artwork around a single theme. I have been thinking about this already since 2008. I have been in contact with Chinese artists to work around a team like flowers or even abstract team without, uh, like comfort. What are European, European artists are doing with flowers as team? What are Chinese artists doing with flowers? Can be very interesting, I think. But as an individual artist, without official support, it's not very rea realistic. Mm -hmm. There could be financial support, but even more important is the practical support for logistics, such as costume clearing. The exhibition has to be held in both Europe and China for promotion uh, in both continents of, if it's necessary, for the selection of the partners and so on. A kind of common institution to support such a project would be also very useful. Three examples that come very close to my idea of cultural uh, cooperation are the traveling exhibition Dialogue with Emperor Qing, which shows statues by European sculptures rela related to the first Chinese emperor. Very nice concept. And the exhibition was organized with the support of the University of Brussels and the Chinese mission in Europe, uh, in the European mission, uh, Union. Another good idea was the Chinese uh, Unlimited competition organized by the Chinese mission in 2015. A very nice concept. European artists were asked to produce an, an artwork about China-European-Europe Europe relations. The winner got a chance to travel to China and learn to know the country firsthand, the best, best way to learn about the con uh, continents. And the select works went uh, on an exhibition tour around Europe. I think, perhaps, in this case, it could have been more impact if local authorities in Europe would have been involved in the promotion or if the exhibition would have been shown in China too. Last example is the or the Confucius Institutes. This is a project between mainly, mainly Chinese and European universities. The first object is to promote the Chinese language uh, in Europe. Can't we also create a permanent common project between Chinese and U European culture institutions of our, our, our authorities when, with the aim of a broader cultural exchange. Thank you for your attention, and I hope in the future we can rea realize some of our dreams. Thank you. Thank you very much, Liv. I think a lot of people are listening, and thank you for those recommendations. Some very good ideas there. Uh, let me turn now to Joan. Uh, Joan, uh, Diego talked about Chinese James Bond. Uh, I know that there was a... I mean, I know there have been Chinese Hollywood co-productions before, but the latest one, The Great Wall with Matt Damon, created a bit of a controversy because they used Matt Damon, not a Chinese actor. So I'm just wondering, what impact is, is Chinese cinema anywhere near its full potential now? And what, what, did, what does Chinese cinema need to learn to get there? Mm. Good question. <laughs> and kind of the, uh, the area that my colleagues and I are battling with every day. So in response to what Diego said about private sector and more grassroots involvement in Chinese soft power, I guess what I can tell you from the Chinese culture industry is that there are uh, a lot of young creatives, a, a whole generation of young Chinese who do care about China's presence in the world. 
Um, and I guess I'm one of them, so that's why I'm here. Um, so, you know, there's stuff to look forward to in the future. Uh, but in, in response to why that's been difficult so far and why we haven't seen a lot of Chinese movies going global, um, there's two levels to answering this question. First is production level, which the answer is just that the Chinese film industry is very young, like a lot of industries in China. Uh, the Chinese film industry did not really liberalize and open up into a modern entertainment industry until the late 90s. So it's really only, not even 20 years old as a modern entertainment industry in terms of talent selection and training and technology and production levels. Um, the good news there is that uh, with technological catch-up and an influx of cash, all those things are easily remedied by money and uh, Hollywood collaborations, which there are many now. Um, but I guess what I'm saying here is that what you've been hearing about the rise of the Chinese film industry in the last few years is largely has to do with box office value, which has more to do with the fact that there's a rise of leisure consumption in China for uh, people having money to spend on the weekends to buy movie tickets rather than actual production value rise. Uh, it has more to do with uh, excess demand of people who, um, so many people spending money on movies that uh, the Chinese box office value is now some months higher than the North America market, which is US, uh, Canada combined, which is why uh, Hollywood is now making movies for China. Uh, but uh, this is production level and these issues are resolvable. Uh, the second level of why Chinese soft power and culture industry has trouble going global has to do with cultural identity, I think. Uh, I think for a culture uh, to really be able to appeal to others, you know, it needs a certain level of confidence uh, and uh, stability itself. Uh, but within Chinese culture for the last decades, uh, maybe even the last century, there has been kind of an identity crisis, right? Whenever a traditional culture modernizes, modernization inherently is westernizing uh, because capitalism and modern lifestyles came to the West first. So in the process of modernizing, you really are deliberating, you know, what of traditional culture to keep and what of the old ways are still relevant uh, and what does it mean to be a modern Chinese person. So. All of this has still been ongoing in the last uh, decades, even now. So uh, while that de deliberation and cultural negotiation is still happening, there hasn't yet been a very confident cultural voice uh, that's coherent to put forth. Uh, so but from both those levels, I think things are changing very rapidly, right? Like production level is catching up. There's excess capital to put into cultural production. There are young people who are excited about this and who have thought a lot more about cultural identity and what Chinese culture export could be. So um, I'm optimistic about what you'll see in the future. What, what kind of, um, so do you think there'll be a mix of the traditional with the modern? I think it's going to be more in terms of, you know, big blockbusters, futuristic movies. Where do you see the trend going? Uh, in the short term, it will probably still be blockbusters because largely, A, there's Hollywood involvement. There's a high incentive to create blockbusters, uh, global blockbusters, which are action adventure, romantic comedy. This is also what I work in, so it's good for me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think in the long term, 
especially as a large country with a lot of pride, China and you know young creatives, we're we're looking to try to figure out new ways of telling real, uh, Chinese stories, which are inherently different from blockbusters, hero stories, right? This is why China does not have a James Bond traditionally, uh, because Chinese culture is not about individual hero worship, uh, traditional culture at least. Nowadays, you know, <laughs> we have Jack Ma, blah blah blah. It's, it's changing, but. Uh, Traditional Chinese storytelling is much more circular. It's about intergenerational stories. It's about uh, it's about a sentiment. It's about kind of staying in place. It's not the same thing as a hero's journey. You know, the Aeneid, the Odyssey. It's it's a very different kind of story. So we'll see. I mean, the traditional story may not be relevant to modern life, but maybe there's something we can do there to blend it because maybe it's good for us both mm -hmm. as a planet and for inner peace. Right, thank you. Yeah, I was just thinking about do you export to the rest of the world, but we'll come to that uh, uh, later on. So, uh, Gao Xujun, so we've mentioned Chinese media and CG, CCTV has been mentioned. I think it's now called CGTN, in fact. Um, but, you know, there's also China Daily, uh, Xinhua. I mean, often when you are doing a Google search, the first stories that come up actually are written by Chinese uh, agencies. So, you know, the power of the media of China is really, really strong, I think. For me, as a, as a former journalist, I can feel it. Just tell us your points uh, on uh, the media playing a role in the soft power progression of China. Thank you, Shada. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I think the topic of uh, the seminar is very meaningful. Um, underline China's, uh, China's soft power it, in a complete sentence after the nine, uh, 19th con National Congress of Ch uh, Communist Party, China has entered a new era. So I, think, I do think that uh, China and the EU and the uh, other of the world should have a fresh understanding of each other. So as uh, Chinese media, I think uh, it's functioning such uh, the as, same as the other ones, in Europe, European Union, America, I think. It's, uh, our aim is to, uh, in very sh short Chinese language, very popular now in Chinese, uh, spread, Chinese spread Chinese voice, uh, tell Chinese story, and spread Chinese culture. I think for media, uh, since I'm now working for uh, China Radio International, uh, China Radio National is uh, a state never radio station or uh, media organization specializing in international communication, uh, broadcasting in more than 60 languages. Six zero. 60, more than 60 languages. Right. And there was a, uh, a total of 3,000 uh, programming hours each day. And we have... For more than 4,000 audience club all over the world. And uh, we also have uh, more than 3 million uh, pieces of audience feedback every year. So since for China Radio, since uh, working, uh, um, functioning as a state level radio, uh, I think his main, uh, his, for the daily work is to introduce the China, introduce China to the world, and introduce the world to China and promote the exchanges and the understanding between the Chinese and the, the other of the world. Um, 
for the for our daily work, I think for myself, uh, now I'm in charge of China Radio's uh, European operation. Now we we have uh, for the first point we introduce China to the world, and we have a, a different uh, operation programs in different countries in Europe. Um, we have local oh, uh, program uh, cooperation program, and we have local broadcast in local language, and uh, and we we have resources share sharing platform, and we are trying to build up a global platform to sharing resources with different medias all over the world. I think. The, the key points is to make the people all over the world to know about China, what's happened, what's happening in China, and for for example, so is a concept uh, the Chinese leaders proposed the Belt Road Initiative and a committee community of common destiny. This is con concept, but. As the daily work for radio, we have to tell different stories. We have to introduce people what the uh, the detailed details about about Chinese re op reform and the opening up of Chinese culture, Chinese tourism, everything in China. At the same time, we introduce word to China since with the uh, following the reform and the opening up, the Chinese media becoming more and more globally minded and open, more and more self-confident. Right. Yeah. Okay. Can I can I just interrupt to ask you? So, in terms of the Belt and Road, for instance, um, when you say you have to turn that into stories to do with people. Are you, for instance, sending your reporters to the different countries who are participating in the project to talk to them? I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you introduce uh, that concept onto a radio show, for instance? So the cooperation is between the different uh, organizations or media alternates. For, uh, for example, we provide some uh, materials for, for making a producing program for the local medias, oh, okay. yeah. And also we have some personnel exchanges. We invited a lot of medias presence to visit China, to have interviews, to, to travel to different places of China. And also at the same time, we have, we have many people come to Europe, to different countries, to, to uh, exchange our um, Working experience and yeah. So, so you're not really. Uh, are you are you reporting? Uh, do your do your journalists report on say what's happening in the EU uh, about President Macron or Chancellor Merkel? I mean Juncker. Do you report on EU affairs as well? Yes, uh -huh. since we have all, uh, about uh, ten uh, correspondent bureau in Europe uh -huh. and uh, including here in Brussels and uh, Paris. I, I myself, I worked in Brussels for four years. Mm -hmm. At that time, my daily work is to uh, cover it, cover the event, uh, EU and NATO. Yeah, for my daily work in Paris, since 
uh, France is a very important country, and uh, it has a very good relation with China. And uh, every important event will be covered by our media right. or by our colleagues, other Chinese media. Right. Okay. Thank you very much. So we've had the panel come in, but I want to turn to Diego just for a second to get a comment on what you've heard. I mean, for instance, uh, what... Uh, uh, Jun is saying, I mean, on, on radio, promoting Chinese uh, culture, introducing people to what's happening. Are these things effective? I mean, you initially were a bit skeptical about how you can actually promote it. Do you think these are effective? No, no, I think that it could be effective as part of a wider strategy. I mean, what they do is really good, but I also I think that uh, may, I might be wrong, and it will be, I would be happy to be wrong. I think that most of the people who listen to your program or to watch uh, uh, the program of CCTV are people who are already interested on in knowing more. The real impact of Safari will be to make the majority of the people who honestly don't know anything about China and still look at China through an old uh, Western prism uh, this is where you need really to do a more longer-term work, and it's really hard to do it because uh, I think China, with the combination of private sector, government, the new creative could like create a new global narrative. Not one is in against the West. Exactly not. This is the old 20th century Western mentality. It's either either us or you. No. Also with the BRR initiative and this kind of new multilateralism is. Listen, hey guy, this is a mess, essentially. Let's try to put all our resources together. Everyone has something to say. Based on, for example, of what uh, John said about uh, the Chinese movie, that's what I've been saying in my uh, business training uh, or, or my lecture. If you want to understand China, the first thing you have to do is to unlearn everything you know in order to learn. The cultures are so different that you can't just try to understand China through... Uh, old Western prism. So this is the first thing about cultural differences. It means that it's not good or bad, it's just difference. And when you have accepted that difference can also be interesting and actually bring a new perspective, I think this is a very important step. And I think that what you said, John, about la, the identity crisis, it's true. And I think that actually China today, by combining the old and the new, could actually bring about a new modernity through innovation, uh, even disruptive innovation. If you go to Shenzhen, it's amazing what they're doing. We are still stuck here talking about, oh, we're organizing seminars about blockchain. They're doing it. They're actually leapfrogging because they, they go from the second to the fourth revolution, industrial revolution without messing through the third one because they started later. And as long as you don't see, you don't believe it. But it's amazing what's coming out of it. And at the same time, there is... Uh, right pride about a long old civilization. And this is another thing that we share as a European with China, while the US are still babies compared to. So uh, I think it's really, if, if I don't know what exactly uh, President Xi means about the Chinese new era, but I think that if we had to find some kind of a narrative, it would be really a new modernity, which is innovative, sustainable rooted in all civilization. Mm -hmm. And I think that you can promote this kind of vision by combining all the elements that we have been discussing today, from the radio programs to the TV program, government strategy, and innovative practices from Chinese companies and Chinese movies. Right. Okay. Thank you very much for your insights on that.
Thank you very much indeed. Let's turn now to all the people who've been listening to what our panel has been saying. Please put up your hands and identify yourself. So I've got Bianca and I've got, yeah, my old friend there. But uh, please, we have time for quite a few questions, so don't be shy. There are some very important questions to be asked, I think, but I leave it to you to do it. I've done my job. So, Bianca, please. Uh, sorry, just wait, yeah. My name is Bianca Baumler. I'm the team leader of an EU-funded public diplomacy project. So this is very much my field, and I'm very interested in the discussion. Um, my question that follows me throughout my work is always, what has the most impact? What is the most effective? There are plenty of things that we can do, but what really um, um, will affect people and influence people the most? So a question... Um, to all of you is um, in terms of impact, who do you feel we should be targeting? I mean, who are we talking to? Are we talking to um, the people who are already interested in the country? So in this case in China, are we talking to a larger general public? Are we talking to influencers, um, be it bloggers or more academic or media influencers? What I mean, this is a very big question, so you can pick and choose. Um, based on who we're targeting, what seems to work the best? Is it a very marketing approach, just pure branding of a country, Coca-Cola approach, I would call it, or more in-depth debate study tours, or the Bond girl, as you mentioned? And um, then related to that, it would be the whole question of who should lead this. Is it more the pri private corporations, governments? Um, I've understood you feel that it's the government should take a role, otherwise it will only be profit-oriented. So just but key, the question of impact. Who has the most impact? Right. Of course, it's a combination of all, but okay. who has I'm the going to take a couple. Thank you very much, Bianca. I'm going to take a couple of other questions. So please, Jan, just identify yourself. Okay. Aris Kokinos from uh, Eurobol.com. It's a question about the soft power on the energy issue. Uh, yesterday at the Energy Outlook Conference, Mr. Fatih Birol um, talked about the ability of the Chinese industry to build power plants that uh, are as efficient as those of other countries, but which are um, much cheaper. So to put this in context, um, lately in France, the company Electricité de France has, has had some difficulties, and some people in France speak of uh, the opportunity to open the market, the electricity market, to concurrence. Uh, inducing probably or maybe Chinese concurrence. So my question is for Mr. Uh, Xi Zhongao, as a seasoned journalist who knows France well, do you think that this would be a feasible uh, scenario? Right, okay. Thank you very much for that. And uh, I'm happy to take... Uh, yeah, Michael, Michael Swan, please. Can you take the... Yeah, keep your hand up. And I owe you an email, Michael. I'll, I'll send you that very quickly. Yeah. Thanks very much. Um, Michael Swan, EU official. Um, I was... Uh, struck by the, the comment about um, the difference of Chinese storytelling and um, personally I'd be very interested to hear more about that but uh, within the context of the panel um, I was just wondering if um, uh, the other panelists also might comment on the what you see as the unknown unknowns the things which people don't even realize that they don't know about um, the way that uh, China maybe approaches uh, its engagement. Thank you. So the things that we don't know the, the, about, the we about don't that. Realize we don't know. Yeah, please. So uh, 
Uwe has a question here. Could you come here, Nassim? Right here in the front row, and then I'll turn back to the panel. Right here. Thank you. A question to, to John on, on, on the movie industry. Um, you probably know the American movie Hua Mulan, and probably you've been as appalled as me about how Hua Mulan just doesn't resemble the Chinese girl at all, but a very American person. The whole story is very American with Chinese characteristics. Now, would you be able, let's say, to turn Hong Lo Mong or other things into a, into American story or a story that appeals to Americans, although it's very, very complex? Or is your the, the reference that you made to creative people, is that more like, let's say, the European niche industry of, of, of creative art films that nobody watches except at festivals? Where, I mean, where is this going? I, mean, I think it would be very interesting to, to have your take on that. Okay. Nobody else has a burning question? The lady over there. Just keep your hand up, please. Final question. Thanks, Andy. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you said something about blockchain and about going from the second stage to the fourth stage without the third stage because you're, China arrived later. Maybe, at, as far as seminars are concerned, okay, but maybe now they are uh, at the fifth stage and uh, it's part of the things we don't know because um, they're very much ahead, aren't they? That's a question for whoever would right. like to answer it. Thank you. Thank you very much. And oh. I I'm, I'm, I'm didn't introduce myself. I'm Aristide Bonaldi, Press, North-South Press, uh, Belgian Association, Royal Association, North-South Press. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much indeed for those questions. Let's start with David. David, do you want to take up some of the questions? Uh, concerning the question, the soft power of public uh, diplomacy strategies target uh, raised by this lady, I think the target uh, is different level and layer. Maybe some target is from, the major target is, from, uh, is towards the ordinary people in the world. Ordinary people. So the people-to-people -people exchange the movie, the television, the media so is very important. So the major target, I think, is uh, to the ordinary people. Maybe they know nothing about China. But, but uh, beside the ordinary people, I think the, the elite, the media elite, academic elite, the political elite, also very important. It's another target. Maybe they're concerned, I just mentioned, the long-term issues, human rights, democracy, rule of law, all those social values, this debate. Can I add censorship to that as well, the concerns? They concern that yeah. issues. So, so, so I think the other target is also very important. Besides only people, is to this elite in the Western world. Right. So the target is different level, different layer, different uh, the aim. So that's my response to all that. And your second question about who lead the, the, the public diplomacy or the soft power strategy? I think in China, specifically discussing, I think the government and the civil society should combine with each other. The government driving all the project or the program, but the civil society also can play a very important role in in this in this uh, public diplomacy. So it's a combination of who leads this uh, process. Right, That's David. Right. In, in the in the in the discussion we just had, we talked about the portals, huh? the social portals, WeChat, etc. So, do you think that in terms of engaging in uh, uh, with, with the Western world, China has to go beyond its, its domestic uh, portals and engage on a wider, on a wider platform. So are, are, are you doing that? Is China doing that? 
you mean the social media? Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. the social media. Uh, social media, I think, is very, very important to to promote the soft power. I know many Western friends, uh, frankly speaking, they said, "Oh, China block the internet and do other things to erode China's reputation of the uh, the, the, the soft power." But this this issue is very complicated. Why China have some uh, extent censorship about the internet? So it's a legal issues to discuss. But generally speaking, I think with the development of the social media, the WeChat, Alipay, or other things, uh, it's, a good, it's a good sign and a good development for Chinese uh, soft power development. That's my personal opinion. And it's where it promotes the engagement between Chinese people to the Western people. Right. And I know more and more people in Western world, they even use the WeChat. That's true. That's true. Uh, so that's the way to go more than the other way around? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, Lee, do you want to come in on some of the issues? Mm, yeah. Um, so I'm an artist, uh, full-time artist since uh, 20 years, but in my life before I was a teacher. So um, uh, my idea is we need to educate people. We have here uh, in the first part of our uh, of today, we talk about uh, so many uh, Chinese who come to uh, Europe, and it is it are not the top Chinese anymore. The middle class Chinese are coming uh, to Europe. Uh, but what I say from China is the same for Europe. We have to educate people. Uh, here in Europe, there have been serious cuts in uh, cultural budgets with uh, negative consequences for the education. I'm convinced that having less cultural education young people, uh, less culturally educated young people, make the society weaker in long term. So that's one of the reasons I say government have to, uh, have, to be, have, to be, have big concerns about investment in culture. I talk about another point of view of, of film industry. Of course, you, have, you need more the money of uh, uh, private companies. It's, it's different. But also as an artist here in Belgium, I see that the government reduces the investments in culture. Artists need more and more private sponsoring. And art became a business. It makes me very sad. As a result, a too large part of the available funds go to the same handful of famous marketable artists. Art galleries, even museums, follow the same strategy to survive. It's not healthy. The art scene become poor. A lot of talent, hidden pearls are lost this way. So that's why I say do not leave the, the culture uh, and art mainly or only on the market. Government should, uh, should create spaces where artists can develop their cre creativity free of economic, political, or religious pressure. Mm -hmm. So to answer the lady's question, question yes, it's very uh, necessary to think about projects who serve this, but not with the idea of making profit. profit. I don't believe in this in long term. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Gashujun, would you want to come in and some of the questions? Yeah, for, for media, um, I think uh, better understanding is better for cooperation uh, between China and the EU. 
Uh, there are so many differences in ideologies, uh, social system, and uh, social modern, social management model, and even cultural tradition. I think there are so many differences. So for media, we are facing some difficulties. Uh, the first of all, we have to tell Chinese uh, China stories about China and how to make the story accept close to the ordinary people, make them know uh, China, what's China, what, what happened in China. Um, so it is very difficult for us to tell the story well, but we are trying to do that. Since uh, many people have never in Europe, ordinary people, have never traveled to China. They even they know a little, very little about China. They are based they are based on the media coverage to obtain information about China, to know <coughs> China. So it's very difficult also, very difficult for them, for the ordinary people to know China. So our purpose is to, based on our platform, our multimedia platform, to provide more and more information about China besides the Western media channel and the European media channel. So I think this is the, the first point. The second point, there are all, also many differences between Chinese media and the Western media, including European media. Since we, have, we are from different country, uh, from different culture, since when uh, we present the coverage on the same thing, maybe we have a different uh, tune. I think this is uh, very important for uh, both European and Chinese media to strengthen exchanges and uh, understanding and cooperation. I think uh, uh, since we have uh, professionally, we have some, we have different uh, ability and method, and in the large scale, we we have uh, we are on different back culture background. So I think it's very necessary, but it's also very difficult. Even though we have to, sure. we have to to strengthen our exchanges and uh, understanding and uh, cooperation to promote the comprehensive strategic partnership between China and EU. Mm -hmm. So the differences are, are there among many people. It shouldn't stop you from working together uh, for common interests. Thank you very much. Um, Diego, I, I want to ask you to answer the question from Bianca about impact, but I also want you to comment on what uh, our friend has said about how the Western media sets the narrative on China, right? Not just in the West, but worldwide. And I just wonder if this changing world order will change that dynamic as well. Because the, 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 the narrative is set not just by the Western media, but Western writers, Western authors. Most of them, by the way, I may add, men. Uh, so uh, I just wonder if that is going to change. Because you write in the South China Morning Post, and one of the things that alerted me to your fantastic uh, thinking is uh, your uh, Learning from China article, where you said China is actually more ready for the age of complexity than, than we in the West are. I just, just some thoughts from you. You can't ask me a question like this and give me two minutes. Yeah, I okay. think... We have uh, to call him back. <laughs> <laughs> no, generally speaking, I think that, I mean, we can organize another uh, seminar about this, that the holistic 
um, structure, Chinese mind is more able to make sense of a complex world that the ideological, linear, typical Western thinking. Okay, so what is I find amazing about the Chinese culture, and you can see it in business or in politics, is the ability to integrate what apparently looks to opposites. If in, in our culture, if A is true and B is the opposite of A, B is definitely false. In Chinese culture, there can be both truth. What does it mean? It means that when Hong Kong goes back to China, everyone in the West, oh my God, oh my God, was it possible? A capitalist country in a communist country? Whatever. Two countries? No. One country, two systems. Easy. What about all this fuss about state or market? Why have both? When Margaret Thatcher met with Deng Xiaoping the first time uh, for a negotiation about Hong Kong, she asked him, what do you mean by socialism uh, uh, with a Chinese characteristic? And he said, whatever you like me to. <laughs> so this is, in a, way, you know, in a world where it's difficult to understand what's going on, this kind of perspective gives you more flexibility. But mm. this is part of it. Then the other one was about... Uh, the impact, I think, uh, honestly, you have a very uh, good question who would need like a, a few more minutes to answer precisely. But I think that based on my experience, once you have someone going to China, see what it is, they come back with a total new perspective. Obviously, you can bring the whole population of Belgium and bring in there. But <laughs> so speaking of the influencers, and then we also we have to find out, so who will be the influencers in 10 years from now? Are the politicians or the journalists? Or so this is really important to see. But in my experience, whether when I was in China and I would welcome friends or clients who would come with cliché or biases, positive or negative, that would leave you a brand new perspective and they would like China. No one, no one left by saying, oh, I hate it. Okay? So this is really important. So I think the people-people exchange, but especially China would open more its door to whether students or people who go there. To your question, back to innovation, uh, they might not be in fifth industrial revolution. Also, one thing that I wanted to say at the beginning, we cannot talk about China. There are many Chinas, okay? Obviously, there were like China where they are even at the stage of the first industrial revolution, but it's very mm, <laughs> limited today. But uh, I can give you an example. I don't know if there is any representative of Huawei here uh, in the room, but Huawei has an important presence in, uh, in, in Brussels. Uh, I went there with a group of uh, Swiss businessmen last July, and they said, I'm, they said, I'm sorry, we need to, to, to cut the, the, the visit shorter because of uh, engagement. So let's skip what we are doing, because you can find it on the website. on Let's try to show you what we are about to do. And we got into a like 600 square meter um, uh, showroom where they have the smart city ready. It's ready. You can manage a city of 30 million people from a computer. And it's not just science fiction. They have already two projects uh, in place with two cities to start uh, this uh, trial. So this is about, yes, you have a part of China that is far away projected into the future according to the last measures in 2019, the R&D um, investment in China will be surpassed the one of the United States. Last one about the media, definitely they're doing a really bad job, whether because they're lazy, <laughs> sometimes because they had never been to China but they pretend to write about it. There was like a famous French sinologist in the last century that said, those who go to China for a few days, they write a book. 
Those who go there for sorry, I did it, but I, I spent a few <laughs> years there. Those who go there for a few months, they write an article. Those who stay in there for a few years, they stop writing. Okay, and uh, the more you, you, you will see in the Western media, there is this attitude: it is based on ignorance, or even when they are well informed, they analyze what's going on there through their perspective, which actually wrong because then you, you have to understand how the Chinese perceive themselves, how they view themselves in the world. And just to your point, last year I, I, I was invited to do a lecture for some young journalist, okay? So, freshly graduate from good universities in Switzerland, about to become journalist. And I told them, first thing you have to remember, is not the, we're not talking about the rise of China. China is coming back. Just 200 years ago, China and India combined... GDP was over half of global GDP. In 2,000 years, the Western domination of the world has been an exception of two centuries. None of them knew that. And we're talking about the elite, so about ignorance and doubt. And these are going to be the journalists who will tell stories about China. Obviously, if we don't change, you, you talked about education, but also education, let's, let's go, what are the curriculum in, uh, in the high school in Belgium, Switzerland, in France? Do they talk about China? Well, I don't think so. Mm. so right, uh, right. Yes, David, just very quickly. Okay, very quickly, both of you. Yeah, yeah leave. Huh, maybe uh, they talk about it. Uh, I have uh, a uh, colleague, uh, history. She lost a uh, couple of years ago nearly her job because she said in the school in Brugge, that she uh, think the socialist system was good for China. She lost already her job. And it's for the, the same uh, for in the press. If you write an article to journalists, uh, to, to newspapers, and you wrote an article, a positive article, they don't publish it. Or they publish it every now and then to give the impression that we are, are free to talk but not too much. They don't publish your uh, article too much. That's the reality, because uh, it is uh, like we ha I think Western countries have a lack of trust in China and are so afraid of the world socialism. What you explained before, you cannot use this word. They find always a new way of, of fi uh, looking for the future. We cannot use a word. Uh, for me... It, China is a, a, a country who wants a peaceful world. Peaceful world. I, I think we know this already. Xi Jinping say in Brugge, I hear him say, uh, China and Europe have different culture and history. Our model would not work in your country. And your model will not work in China. Right. So we need to respect each other's system and learn cooperative from the starting point. Yeah. That's why culture is important. And that's have to do with trust, I think. Yeah, right. Thank you very much, Liv. Yes, David, very just quickly. Yes. But I do want to bring Joan yeah, in yeah, as yeah, well. I just so briefly so supplement to be, what Diego said. I think I fully, uh, totally agree with what uh, Diego just emphasized that China uh, should provide something different with the Western way of thinking toward the... the so the, a China the, model? No, not a China model. I, I discussed the Chinese philosophy or Chinese metaphysical things, for example. Uh, traditional Chinese culture is a combination and a mixture of uh, Confucianism, Taoism, and uh, the Buddhism. Right. So we know the core element of the Confucianism is benevolence. Benevolence. Just like love is the core 
value of the Christian reality. <laughs> and we also have Taoism. Taoism emphasizes the dialectic way of thinking. Right. Just you mentioned, not A or B, we can both A and B. Right. So not just uh, many Western uh, politicians have the way of thinking like white and black, evil and good. But in Chinese way of thinking, that everything is dialectic, so it can be transformed right. under some condition. So um, and we also have uh, Hilayala, Mahayala, this the Tibetan Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, all those things. These things we can provide toward the, the, the Western audience, not just the food, not just the panda, right. not just the fan, those things. We can provide some philosophic, or we can provide some metaphysical things, different way of thinking. It's a different uh, right. alternative toward the, toward the Western audience. I think it is the most that can interest and attract uh, the Western audience and uh, what we can do by our media and by our soft power. Right. right. That's Thank what you, I David. Wanted. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Uh, first of all, I re really do, and I'm not sure we'll have time because I really need to end at uh, 12.30. So please, go ahead. Okay. Feeding out of everything that was just said, I think uh, there's two questions at hand about Chinese storytelling. One is how do you show modern China to the world? How do you tell the world about what China is like today? And in that respect, at least from the film industry, I think the way to do it is just to go cool and sexy the same way Hollywood did. Short term, that's the way to do it. Uh, but there is a larger question of what kind of story could China tell to the world that's different and new in the longer term. Um, a short answer to whether China will become a niche film market, no, because <laughs> uh, the cultural ambitions are greater than that, I think, than, uh, than becoming, the, the idea is to go head to head with Hollywood, not to become a specific type of film. Uh, which is all about soft power. Uh, but I think in terms of telling a specific Chinese story, very briefly in the abstract, this goes into what stories are, right? Like stories are how people interpret their lives. So according to literary theorist Bakhtin, there are four general types of stories in the world. Uh, the first one is the hero's journey, we're all familiar with. This is the Hollywood hero's story, the Aeneid journey from A to B, life to death, etc. This is how most people in the world see their lives today. Uh, second type of story <laughs> is the Greek tragedy. Life is inherently chaotic and meaningless and kind of tragic, but it's also a comedy. The joke here is that when the Greek financial crisis happened, you know, Greeks who were interviewed in the streets were just like, eh. But if you interviewed an American, they were like, okay, we have plan A and plan B, and we're going to go from here to here in this time. Uh, the third kind is constant struggle. This is like a Marxist story where like, Russian literature, you know, life is just constant struggle. Uh, that is the meaning of life. Uh, and then finally, you have the fourth kind of story, which is what traditional Chinese stories belong to. It's, it's kind of a regenerative story. It's like a, st a circle of life story. It's not uniquely Chinese. There are other traditional cultures that have this too. But the idea is you interpret everything as regenerative, as gener intergenerational, seasonal. Uh, the relationship with everything is kind of this flow which is why it, it can uh, contain contradictions, because everything is circular and comes back anyway. Maybe the easiest way to see this is yin and yang. It's very difficult to tell that story right now because it's not very relevant to modern life. Stories that appeal to people have to be relevant to their lives, and almost nobody lives that kind of life anymore, uh, where you know you have four generations in a house, like in one house. That's what traditional Chinese families were like. We don't have that anymore very, very often, but... Uh, in the long run, this could be something that could be done. Any American story could be Chineseified, I guess, by turning it into this kind of story. But why, why all the focus on America? What about European cinema and the European? I mean, oh. well, this what, is, what I guess is this about? <laughs> this is a discussion of soft power, right? <laughs> and Europe I think, has uh, soft power. <laughs> 
Europe has soft power, but I think uh, when you when you think about at least for the film industry of popular culture that everyone in the world knows and has watched is mostly American movies. Mm. Uh, anywhere you travel in the world, people know American TV shows, American movies, specific European films, yes, but not at the scale that people understand New York or L.A. Mm-hmm. So is someone here from DG Culture, etc.? I mean, this is serious business here. Michael, you take it back to the External Action Service, that's for sure. Thank you, that was very honest. I'm sorry I can't give anyone more time. I was given till 12.30, so we really need to end uh, this wonderful conversation. So you talked about different stories, and I think the Friends of Europe story is one of constant learning. And I think this panel has really helped us to to go deeper, dig deeper into what has become a mythical story here, a mythical monster, China's soft power, beware China rising. And I think this has been really, really helpful to put certain context and to understand uh, that despite our differences, and there are many, we need to work together. So I'd like to thank all five of you, really, for coming over from all parts of the world to come to this panel discussion. Uh, Please join me in thanking our panelists and also to you. (laughs) 